Now entering Nerdist.com. You made it weird. You made it weird. You made it weird. Oh, yeah. You made it weird. You made it weird. Yes, you did. You made it weird. Oh, yeah. You made it weird with Pete Holmes. What's happening, weirdos? Uh, finally got the wonderful Judd Apatow to do a one-on-one. I say finally only because I've been wanting him for so long. And let's get to it as soon as possible because it is wonderful. Very quick uh, plug up top. Very few tour dates are remaining. It's me and Rob Bell, the uh, Meaning of Life tour, I'm now calling it. Uh, the Together at Last tour where we just basically do comedy. There's a lot of stand-up. There's questions and answers. And, there, and there's like talking about... Uh, what is reality and the state of consciousness. If you like the third act of this podcast, you'll like this live show. They've been amazing. Thank you sincerely to everybody that's been coming out. There's three remaining dates, Tampa, Orlando, and Boston. If you're listening to this the day it comes out, uh, we're doing Tampa tomorrow. That's Thursday, Orlando the next day, and Boston is on the 23rd at the Wilbur Theater. That's going to be amazing. So please come out to that. The, uh, the sponsor is, you know this, Squarespace. Uh, thank you so much for your sponsorship, Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. So try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code WEIRD to at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. You know this. It's simple. It's beautiful. It's powerful. They got 24-7 customer support. It's only 8 bucks a month, and you get a free domain uh, if you buy Squarespace for the year. It's got a responsive design, which means the website looks great on any device. And they got cover pages that allow you to set up a beautiful one-page online presence in minutes. So do it. Go to uh, squarespace.com. Use Weird on checkout to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for You Made It Weird. Thank you, Squarespace. Squarespace! Build it beautiful. Hope to see you out on the road. Please enjoy uh, one of my heroes, Judd Apatow, in this wonderful uh, late talk. We started at 10 o'clock at night. It's the latest we've ever done it, but we really went there. So I hope you enjoy. Get into it. Was that? I'm glad it worked out. I was early. I, I didn't mean to be, obviously. We're in similar situations, you and I, because you're, you're, Leslie is out of town. Yes. Uh, Valerie is out of town. Mm-hmm. And uh, what... <laughs> So I just left. Like, I'm just sitting there. You know what yeah. I mean? I'm like... The world changes when uh, the girlfriends and spouses are out of town. Yeah. Dramatically. When, what, because mine, it's very lame. Mine is like, I'll eat Thai food. Val will not eat Thai food three days in a row. She might let me get away with two days in a row. But that is the main difference is that I'm constantly ordering Thai food. What is it for you? When you eat Thai food, does she worry that you're going to die from Thai food? No. It's funny that you ask that because, you know, it was a pleasure researching this. And you know I'm such a huge fan of your work. But I was just like, I'm just going to watch your most personal film. I was watching This is 40. And there's so much cupcake garbaging yes. in that film that I thought maybe you would think it was that. But it's, it's mostly that she can't handle the same kind of... She'd hate to live in Thailand, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> over and over, the monotony of Thai food. When you're married, your wife doesn't want you to die. Yeah, she's invested in the long haul. There's some of that pressure to not die, which I resent. <laughs> There's a part of me that feels like, I get to choose the end date. Don't put pressure on me to stick around for you. Well, you make that point quite well. I was going to ask you all these questions about This Is 40, and then I was like, these are all too personal. I know. <laughs> that movie is so personal, it would be weird to ask follow-ups. I guess it's okay to ask follow-ups, and I'll just be very careful to never let 
Leslie, no, you have a podcast. <laughs> Before we start, because I don't know how long people listen into a long podcast, yeah. I, I would like to say that I have a book called Sick in the Head, yes. which is a collection of interviews with all my favorite comedians that I've done over the last 30 years, and all the money goes to the 826 uh, Literacy and Tutoring Charity. Oh, I didn't know that. And if you want to read my conversations with Chris Rock and Louis C.K. and Steve Allen. Yep. People like that. Yep. Uh, it's a very good book, and you, you learn a lot about comedy and why people got interested in the arts. I'm reading it. You were podcasting before it was a thing. <laughs> That's right. It people was like think I just... stole it from Marin. I stole it from you. <laughs> the original po- comedy podcast. I can't get over it. I, I, I de- immediately devoured Seinfeld, Steve Martin. Colbert is unbelievable. That was great because I had never spoken to him at length. The, the, you know, the fun thing about doing the interviews is it's just an excuse for me to ask all of these people questions that you can't ask them. Yeah. Even if you know them, yep. it's weird to just well, ask I mean, Chris Rock, like, so how do you feel at this stage in your career right. about your stand-up comedy? And uh, to get a chance to, you know, look at, you know, look your heroes in the eye and, and ask them how they're doing and how, yeah. and how they're feeling creatively uh, is a huge thrill. I, I, I only wanted to do three or four new interviews for the book. I thought they were all going to be old, mm. but I got such a kick out of being able to grind people like John Stewart and Louis C.K. about you know how they're pulling all of this off and right. their, their feelings about it. Right. And it's not if you went to lunch with John Stewart and we're like, what makes you nervous? That would be weird. <laughs> but like, we kind of enjoy it. Like, how much of your work is making a record? Like your office, for example, uh-huh. is covered in photographs, just like the yes. halls of SNL and yeah. stuff. And I, you know, I, I don't think he'd mind me saying I saw Nick Kroll recently, uh-huh. and they just rapped on Kroll's show, and I was like, "How does it feel?" And he said, "It's already like it never happened." You know, he was yes, I, I, I feel that way. I don't know how much he was kidding. He said it kind of in a funny way, but I was like, "I know exactly what you're talking about." Yes. So when I'm when I've been in your office and seen the photos, I'm like, this makes sense. You want a wall that you can yes. stand in front of. Be like, look, this is the life. <laughs> it's proof that I, w- I have a past. I have a body of work. Well, I'm a hoarder. Yep. And so <laughs> I, you know, I hoard because I feel like everything in retrospect is good. Because, you know, with a photo collection, you know, you don't hang the picture of the kids crying on the wall. <laughs> and so suddenly, like, the bad trip, it becomes a good trip. Because even if you right. only had a good, one good day, right. that's the only photo you keep. That's brilliant. And, and so in retrospect, it's all good. Right. You know, you can even hang up the best happy photo from the worst movie you made. Right. And, and think, oh, that's what that experience was. Sure, sure, sure. And so I think that's how I am with everything. I just, I'm, I'm, I think I'm getting worse at, at hoarding. I, I hoard... Uh, I go on Twitter. I look for articles that are interesting. I email them to myself. I've never read one of them. <laughs> I do that too. But I might do it 50 times a day. Yes. And star the ones that I want to read. And I buy books. I never read. I've never read almost any of the books in that giant wall of books. I'm, same way. Uh, and It's proof that you have interest in a book. And buying yes. a book, mm-hmm. this is something that Henry Rollins said when he was on the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's not really the book. It's the thought that you might at some point have the time to read the book. Or live long enough to read all your books. Yeah, that's like my fantasy. But now I know I'm not going to live long enough. Already, <laughs> if, I, if I started reading now, I wouldn't make it to, to through all the books. You could get some of that Mike Tyson one in. 
That's actually the only book I've read. Is that? Have you read that one? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I picked the one. But one day at Barnes & Noble, I thought, I'm going to read a whole book about Mike Tyson. It makes me sad. Is that specifically <laughs> men? Is Leslie that way? Because Val's a better reader, and my dad is... If it's bad, then he's horrible. Yes. If, it's, if it's good, then he's great. Leslie loves, books he doesn't read. Leslie loves chucking stuff out. If she is in a bad mood, if she's feeling depressed, she'll go... Let's clean out our closets. Interesting. And so she uh, feels relief yeah. from the removal of things. Right. And I'm the exact opposite. The more crap in the room, the more I'm happy. Although she says I'm kidding myself and it's uh, drown- I'm drowning in it and <laughs> it hurts my creativity and I'm- it puts me in a fog. Yeah, I, I need to you know feng shui the whole thing. But isn't that how it seems to me? Uh, sorry to interrupt. Isn't that kind of how you work? I feel like you're one of these guys that you're 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 creating a little bit of a paper tornado, uh-huh. and then the idea, like Draper. Draper says, think yes. on the idea real hard, mm-hmm. then stop thinking about it, and it'll just pop in. And I think you and I, when I was doing my talk show, is the closest I've come yeah. to living your kind of life, where there's all this, all these people hooking up the hoses to your yeah. tank. You know what I mean? And I think I've seen you be like. I'm going to keep it swirling. I'm going to be very, not too specific, and mm-hmm. then it'll show up on the day. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Sometimes I feel like if I was only working on one thing, I would be so much more thoughtful and do a better job. <laughs> uh, but most of the time, a lot is happening at once, and then I have little spurts of attention. I'm going to sneeze right now. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I, I can't believe you did it. Bless you. Leslie would say that means I'm stressed. You said on Talking about work class that it makes you ner- when you're nervous you sneeze. I, I have a lot of allergies right now, but I don't think oh, it's, it's from that. <laughs> but you, I was I was blaming on allergies. Yeah, I'm terrified. <laughs> uh, uh, but Leslie always thinks that I, I I'm nervous. I'm a nervous. Uh, I have a nervous allergy. Yeah. But then every time something terrible in life is happening, you know, like someone dies, I'm like. I didn't get sneezed then. Yeah. So then your you theory doesn't work. <laughs> your theory doesn't work. Or anytime something really stressful happens, right. like, that whole week I didn't sneeze once. So right. I, don't, I don't think you can correlate it. Or maybe you're just really okay with that. I might be of happy other people. that person died. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I do think uh, I enjoy the, the swirl of ideas and popping in. But then you do have to focus. We're doing this show called Love with uh, Paul Rust and Gillian Jacobs and... You know, there's some scripts that need work. So I said, Paul, come over. We'll unplug the phone for two days and we'll just fix all the scripts right. that aren't working. Yeah. And so that's what we've been doing. And and you still enjoy, you must, getting your hands dirty. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, at, at a certain point, it's like you just like creating things. Because one of the things I like to talk to people that have reached a certain, you know, is Monicum? Monicum? Modicum? Modicum. Modicum. Modicum Lewinsky. <laughs> she was only in the limelight for a moment. <laughs> Monica, okay. <laughs> I met Monica Lewinsky, and she was very nice. Really, and Leslie and I asked her for her contact information, so I have her her email and phone number oh. on my computer there. Yeah, um, and you just email her Twitter articles that you. Don't I haven't, read. I haven't, uh, haven't uh, emailed her yet. Yeah, uh, but it makes me happy to have it right there in front of me. Sure, <laughs> she's she, pretty good. She's like a very cool, nice person. I, I, I'm very. Uh, uh, I'm on her side and everything she's talking about now about how badly she was treated and how everyone took Clinton's side over hers when right. she was really like a young, powerless the subtle person. misogyny of that, I suppose. Yeah, I think yeah. it's kind of brutal to what not you- get people defending you. Yep. I mean, it's like if I was like, 
you know, hitting on my college interns. Right. Is that really their fault? Because I'm macho Judd Apatow. Right, right, right. And but, I can manipulate the situation. Right. Yeah, of course. I can say, uh, make love with me, and uh, you can meet Peter Holmes. <laughs> that's, that's only going to get you a hand job. <laughs> that's not going to get you all the way. Well, you know, it's funny. I, was, I just watched this really nice documentary called uh, Misrepresented, M-I-S-S, Represented. And it was talking about all the subtle... This all leads to Cosby. Quick. Let's get right into Cosby. <laughs> I was actually lifting the nose up from Cosby so we could close on... Always close on Cosby. But the idea of women in film and, and, you know, they make that point. What is that rule that, like, if there's two women alone in a scene, they're often only talking about the, the men, men, the men's story and stuff? Is that something... I, I this isn't hard copy. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I wasn't even planning on asking you. But what do you, what do you feel about... Because you're, you're a, a pro-woman person. Isn't there, like, something called, like, the Bechtel test or something? I think that's what and it there's is. there's, like, five things. Right, 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 right. If there's a woman in a movie, does she, she go 30 minutes without speaking about a man? <laughs> exactly. All these tests. That's what it is. Well, I just saw Furious 7, and I was like, holy shit, that, that movie was right. Well, I think... Uh, uh, and I, I know this from reading a lot of scripts that Leslie's been sent over the years. Uh, it is there's a, an enormous amount of terrible writing for women and writing where the woman only serves right the man's story right. So it is awful. Although I don't like those tests, I may dislike them as much as uh, the writing that serves <laughs> the man. <laughs> right, <laughs> because you don't need a test to go. Oh, this is. Terrible and shallow, right? And doesn't illuminate anything about women other than their relation to men. But there's romantic comedies, and a lot of life is a man trying to meet a woman or a woman trying to meet a man. And there's right. nothing wrong with that, right? If it's done thoughtfully, mm-hmm. so it's hard to say. But yes, I I, uh, I also enjoy uh, Kill Bill. <laughs> the uh, what, what did they call that? The fuck toy with a gun or something. <laughs> Because they were like, what about these movies like Salt or whatever? But then it was like still, you know, she's gorgeous and shooting stuff. It's still kind of like a for the guys or whatever. Okay, I, I love still Alice. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean to call you on your She's line. A servicing a man that she's forgetting about. <laughs> How do you forget Alec Baldwin? He, he treated so her so terribly. <laughs> he's like, you have Alzheimer's. I'm, I'm, let's move to a place where you don't know anybody. I know. <laughs> that movie was And heavy. even with Alzheimer's, she said... I don't think that's a good idea. I, I won't know anyone there. And he still was forcing her to move. But then, of course, you did Girls, and we were both huge Lena Dunham fans, and, and yes. that's that's obviously kind of mm-hmm. pushing things in that direction or whatever. Sure, yeah. It's been fun being around Lena and getting to understand all of the things that she prioritizes. Right. Has it helped with your relationship with your daughters? At all? I know well, they're, they're it's inspired that. my daughters because, you know, Lena is somebody who represents a lot of great things like hard work. Yep. Loving yourself as you are. Uh, that it's okay to be a unique individual. Right. And you know, she's a writer, producer, director, actor. I mean, everything about her is pretty magnificent. She's very involved politically and stands up for important causes. Mm. And she's brilliant. She, she, you know, she's somebody, if you talk about a scene with her, when she goes home to write it and she hands it to you, it's always 50 times better than the conversation was. Mm. And What a skill. And there's not many people I've ever met who are like that, where uh, the writing is always better than the outline or better than how you uh, first discuss it. It's supposed it. to lose something. 
Or, well, most people can't pull it off. Like, mm. you talk about it, and then you read it, and you're like, oh, wow, that didn't work at all. Right. Uh, and with her, she adds eight more wrinkles to it. Right. And goes deeper, and you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm working with someone really special. How do you feel when you're writing? Do you ever get that sort of Tarantino-y? He's, he's one of those guys that has the balls or, or maybe the uh, whatever, the lack of self-awareness to just kind of say what some writers feel when they're writing. I know you spent mm-hmm. all day writing, so maybe you don't feel this way mm-hmm. or maybe you do. When you're writing, do you ever just kind of feel like, oh, I, I'm just like, it's kind of flowing through me. It's like kind of like a, almost like a transcendent experience. Uh, there, there are times when it starts coming fast. And I've said this before where, you know, it is the only time I believe in God because sometimes things just appear. And you could think your your brain is a supercomputer mm-hmm. that's somehow been trained to think of jokes right. or how to write dialogue. Uh, but that is the only time I, I feel like, oh, there, there's some other universal right. intelligence. Because it, it shows up. Like I heard Tommy Chung on Howard Stern once, and he was talking about how he feels like some people can just hook into the pipe of creativity in the universe, mm-hmm. and they just have the ability to just hook into the pipe and mm-hmm. accept it. Mm-hmm. And he and he said, Hendrix could do that, and I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, yeah, Cheech and Chong and Hendrix, yeah. I, 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 you know, honestly, probably Cheech and Chong has uh, affected me positively right. more than Hendrix. Right. Uh, all the hours I spend alone in a room listening to them. So I do think that's true. If you can relax and be open enough, maybe something great will happen. To kind of surrender to it or whatever. But then yeah. I think there's that other side of writing, and I wonder what you feel about that, where you'll be looking for some sort of moment, and then you actually go into the shame bin. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And I, I think you, you've made a pretty good... That's my only bin. <laughs> <laughs> But isn't that nice? I mean, that was that was something I actually wrote down to say to you. Is it was actually in Kick Ass too, and I set up a little reminder in my phone to say it to me every day, which is take pain and make something good. Mm-hmm. Something like a lot of the things you've done, Freaks and Geeks, all the way up, seems to be like something that was painful or awkward, not in a cliche way, in a subtle way. It doesn't have yeah. to be you getting punched in the dick every day, yeah. but you know, just that sort of. I've heard you say like. There, you, in your films, you don't like having bad guys because you feel like usually you're in your own way and life is enough of a yeah. bad guy sort mm-hmm. of thing. So that idea that the things that have been getting in your way, you're, you're working on a script maybe today with Paul, and you, you hit something and you're like, well, we need something to happen here. And then out of the garbage bin, what most yes. people are trying to delete, you salvage something and uh, make it into a, a joke. That's true. I, I, David Milch always talks about this quote about you know, turning your your pain and weaving it into gold. Mm. Uh, you know, taking the bad things and that's you know the raw materials for your creativity and your art. And I I didn't think of that in the beginning of my career, but I, I think it it's true. Uh, and so when bad things happen, sometimes you think, oh, this. Yeah, I can do, I can do something with this at some point. I was driving here, and I I must I must be getting fat or something because I unbuttoned my button, and then mm-hmm. I felt so good that I zipped down yeah. my pants and I opened the belt buckle, <laughs> and then I was like, I'm not at home. Uh-huh. But then I was thinking, 
oh, that would be a funny scene. Like if I got yeah. in a car accident and you get out or kind <laughs> yeah. of a curb your enthusiasm sort of mm-hmm. thing, you're by uh, a public school yeah. <laughs> or you're in this neighborhood and I pulled over to text you if it was yeah. okay to come early. There were all these opportunities yeah. where it was not okay for a man, a man in his mid-30s to have his pants open. I would add one ball popped out of your <laughs> See, that's, that's my goal. That's my magic. <laughs> one testicle. Up to the actor. People say, what's the special thing about Judd's work? And that's it, in a nutshell. One ball. One ball. That's the nutshell. (laughs) nutshell. That is the nutshell. That is literally a nutshell. (laughs) But that's true. And I think... uh, But I was almost hoping for something like that to happen so I could be like, oh, I'll put that in my little shame folder. Yeah. And it happens all day long. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like, oh, I really mind all that. I don't even have that many bad things right now. I need to wait a few years to let Ben... Fills up. Yeah. Like, after This is 40, it was fun to work with Amy Schumer's bin of shame. Right, exactly. While I fill up my bin right. <laughs> more of my life. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that weird? I, I mean, like, you, your relationship with those moments completely flips. Mm-hmm. Like, and again, these don't have to be follow-up questions, but I really love it. This is, mm-hmm. this is 40 opens with the Viagra scene. Yes. Something that... Viagra is... Huge. Yes. It's a huge drug. And I believe the average age of a prescription is about 32, actually. Sure. It's way younger than people yeah. think it is. And nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. It's the way that maybe like people didn't... Now everybody's okay being like, I love yeah. porn. Like, you'll tell your exactly. grandmother, I love porn. Like, that was a shameful thing 20, <laughs> 30 years ago. And now the new shameful thing is talking about dick pills or whatever. Yeah. But somebody <clears throat> is making this a $9 billion <clears throat> industry. Sure. So when you see that vulnerability... You're, that's the sort of thing that I like. That movie hooks you in right there, and you go, "Oh, this, they're going to not be lying to us." Well, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I always, uh, you know, thought that the funny part was that he was just so afraid to tell her, yeah, that he did it. Right. Uh, it says he, that on the bottle. Don't, don't tell your wife. Don't tell your <laughs> that's in the movie. He says, "Don't tell your wife." Yeah. But uh, yeah, everything that's bad is funny, and you know, sometimes <laughs> when you write movies and. You know, I always get this in talking about some of the female parts. You know, people will say, oh, she acted, uh, she was tough on the guy there. And I always think, well, no, it's like I'm just showing the ups and downs of people. We're so right. used to women being presented in such a clean, positive light or just a quirky light right that when you go no this is like what it's like when he's a jackass this is what it's like when she's mad at him right or when she does something ridiculous and and it's just not polished Mm -hmm. and that's you know what i find interesting about people i always like people at their worst yeah you know even when we were promoting this is 40 you know people always ask me about that and marriage and i said no, this is just their bad day. Most of the time, it's fine. This is like a bad week. They're not like this all the time, but this right. is... And you know, what I was talk, thinking about was when we did Knocked Up, Leslie and Paul break up, and then when they come back from Vegas, suddenly they're just back together. There's no explanation about what happened. Right. But then when Seth tries to get back together with Catherine, she says no. Right. But you never know why Leslie and Paul stayed together. And you realize, oh, it's because they're married. Right. And you have to figure it out. You've got kids. You have a life. Right, right, right. And I thought, oh, this is 40 is what happened in that week. Right. That's you right. Know, when it crashes and burns. I always talked about it like it was uh, 
a Michael Douglas movie, Falling Down with a Couple. I was just in the Army-Navy store where they shot that. I really? saw a big poster. <laughs> but there, I was like, oh, my God. I wanted to say lines from it, but every scene, every line in that uh, shop is inappropriate. Exactly. <laughs> I couldn't say any of them. Uh, uh, my, my favorite is that my, uh, this hypnotist I, I have been to has a poster for this Barbara Hershey movie where she is uh, sexually assaulted by a ghost. <laughs> forgot what the name of it is. And it's he said, a weird poster to have in an office yeah. where you're put under. You and he said, you know, I used to be a, like a parapsychologist. Like he was a ghostbuster of some sort. Yeah. Or, or a studier of ghosts. Yeah. And, he's, and he said, I was a consultant on that film. No. So you consulted on how to sexually attack a oh woman if you're a ghost. That's so funny. <laughs> Not since the Kevin Bacon Invisible Guy movie have I seen uh, supernatural things molesting. <laughs> well, it was it was really disturbing because they clearly did some effect where they would like have a plate of glass and push it on parts of her body oh, like God. she was being attacked. Oh, God. No, it was awful. It was awful. But he is an excellent hypnotist. Yeah. <laughs> I, I see a hypnotherapist, too. Yeah. Cynthia Morgan. Did you enjoy it? Uh, I, I enjoy it. I, I, I very much enjoy it. People always say, like, I won't go under. I'm too strong. I never know if I am going under or not because I fall asleep so easily I can't tell the difference. But he always says, like, if you fall asleep, it doesn't matter. It's still working. Right. That he's getting, like, but do you ever, like, respond and stuff? Sometimes my uh, woman has you respond, like you're supposed to talk back to her. Uh, no, she had to, he, he does not ask me to respond. How very bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the Adam Sandler sketch on his record. Do you ever hear the farting hypnotist? No. It's just Kevin Nealon is a hypnotist, and, and he's saying, okay, count back from five, four, three, two, <laughs> One, and then Adam's like, did you just fart? Nope, that was you. And, uh, yeah, before you know it, you're going to stop talking. And he just keeps farting right when you'd be relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> we used to, me and my buddies used to remake The Longest Pee. Do you remember that one? Yes, I love The Longest Pee. We would make our own tapes of pee and play. I don't know. We were so bored. I was uh, <laughs> very proud of my participation in Cock and Balls. I'm one of the oh, really? actors in Cock and Balls. Oh, so. how lovely. Um and you got you and Sam are still close. I've, I got to meet him because he does your Largo show and stuff. Yes, which is so impressive and fun. Well, he, uh, you know, used to make these records in between movies because he just had so much energy to make things. Yeah. So in between every movie, he would go in the studio with everyone and write and improvise all these sketches. See, you know, it's funny. That's something I was going to ask you. Is like I've never really seen. You're an early to rise. Uh-huh. And here it is. You suggested starting this notoriously long podcast, although we already discussed that we don't need to go very long, <laughs> at 10 o'clock. Jed, I'm younger than you, and I'm like, that's a little late. But, but like, I've never really seen you. I'm sure you do. But you always seem to like, you go to the thing, you take the meeting, you have energy. Yes. I, like, you're kind of Sandlery in that way, too. Like, Well, I'm trying to, I, I try to fit most of life into, like, 8.30 to 5. But Leslie's out of town, and my kids are asleep. <laughs> and I know I'm going to be up anyway. It's either this or catching up on... Mad Men. Yeah, just uh, watched it. How was it? It's good. It's very confusing, right? You'll see. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. So now I just have to decide if after this I'll watch it. Uh, but I'm always like, trying to get home. I'm, my whole thing is like, can I get home to the kids? Can I get home to Leslie? And so I'm compressing everything during the day and just blazing all day. Right. But I really do need a more leisurely schedule to write uh, and just 
be thoughtful. But lately, there's just a lot started happening at the same time. We're we're shooting the Love Show for Netflix. We're doing the Pee Wee Herman movie, the Lonely Island movie, and Girls at the same time. Yeah. So there's like two months where it's fully bananas. Where I, I'm just thinking, I'm just taking it day by day. Yeah. If anyone has a problem, I, I guess they'll find me. Right. And I'm just doing as much as I can. And right. Everyone working on those projects is very talented, and I'm just like the guy moving in the direction of a problem. Right. For, for a couple of months. <laughs> Who doesn't have enough money? Who doesn't have the right joke? What casting is falling apart? And, I, and I'm just pivoting all day. Right. What, what, is, what is your golden space, though? Like, are you right in the morning before the, your whole ego takes over, or you kind of wind down with your creativity? Well, now I just have to be reactive all day. If I'm writing, I try to write in the morning, tell everyone not to tell me if anyone called and just hit the ground running at right. 8.30 or 9.30 and try to take it to 1 or 2 o'clock if I'm writing a movie. Mm-hmm. But I haven't had a a clear movie idea since this is 40, so I've been helping a lot of people with their movies, and I'm not sure if that's good or bad because I've been enjoying working on a lot of other people's projects, and I don't feel the real need to write and direct Constantly, right? Does that feel different? Is it? Are you able to be as satisfied doing, say, Amy's content, or was there something about doing yourself? <laughs> well, it's very stressful when I do mine because I feel like, oh no, all the decisions are mine, so everything that goes wrong is my fault. I better get this right. But then you also said, like, when you're the authority on the topic, then you you kind of can get some confidence from that. You're like. This goes this way. This is how Leslie is. This is how Maude and Iris would be. This is yep. how uh, Movie Judd would be. <laughs> and then and then when you're doing Amy, you do have to kind of be like, well, maybe even though she might be thinking it's this way, you think I think this would be better for the movie or whatever. Well, it just takes a little pressure off that I'm tilling someone else's soil. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm trying to help them shape it and ask questions which will provoke potential fixes. But I'm not freaking out that I'm going to be personally humiliated. Mm. It's, so it's different uh, in a good way because I, I, I care just as much, but I have less fear. Mm-hmm. You know, when you work with your intimates, whether it be Adam Sandler or my family, I'm very aware of not wanting to make anyone look bad. And I'm trying to do something that we're all proud of to right. the point of uh, you know an enormous amount of concern and guilt and anxiety mm-hmm. but when I'm in a different gear helping Amy a lot of that pressure is gone and I work just as hard but I'm trying to be in service of her mm-hmm. and her vision and make a contribution to it but I don't have that sense of if this is a disaster, really bad, <laughs> in, in, in a good way, you know. No, I, I don't think that sense of terror mm-hmm. helps anything. Right. Uh, it doesn't drive harder work mm-hmm. or anything. It just makes me crazy. So when it comes to, I kind of was uh, hovering around this earlier. When it comes, like, uh, not to be so obvious, but like, you've made money. You, you can live, and you've gained respect. Like people respect your work and. And uh, you kind of have a little bit of a key to the city, the comedy town, 
for sure. Uh, what is it that you're after now? The feeling of the release, the feeling of the good reviews? Are you chasing off your self-doubt? I'm not really sure right now. I feel like I'm <laughs> in a period of transition, and I'm not sure at all. I uh, I think that you get pulled into the momentum of certain things going or not going, and sometimes I think, well, just have fun day to day with whatever's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as I get older, I don't have my initial needs and impulses. Uh, that drove me before to just get in the business, to be allowed to make a movie, mm-hmm. to get any respect from anybody. Mm-hmm. So because a lot of my goals have been met, which were just to make a good comedy at some point or to have people think I'm someone that knows how to do this. Mm-hmm. Now I, I'm more thoughtful, but without any resolution of, uh, all right, well, why are you talking about anything? Why do you make anything? What's the purpose of it? Right. And sometimes I think, well, you're just here to make people happy and don't think about it so much. Just tell some stories. And every once in a while, something will connect with a lot of people. Sometimes it won't. But just keep trying to go deeper and connect with people, make people happy, make people think about their lives in some way that might be positive. And don't worry about it so much. Right. And then other times I, I do think, well, what else is there to cover? <laughs> I did birth and death and marriage and you know, family yeah, uh, um, and comedy. And I realize, like, oh, there's not really that much left. There's old age. I could start writing about that now. Right. Uh, I could go back and talk about, like, divorce and when my parents got divorced and I go back to youth. Right. But I really do feel, oh, I made a pretty good high school show and a pretty good college show and a pretty good young adult show and first sex, first relationship, marriage, older marriage, death, comedy. You know, I've covered a lot of my bases. So right now I'm like, I'm not sure what to write about. Although I'm trying to write a little bit about service, sacrifice, uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm writing a, a, a screenplay with Phil Cly, who wrote this great book, Redeployment, about soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan and their time there and what happens when they come home. And we've been writing an original screenplay. And, you know, that's a different experience trying to write a comedy with drama or a drama with comedy about those people and what they've gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully an entertaining way. So it's not one of those really depressing movies you don't want to see, mm-hmm. but just about you know, what happens when soldiers return to a country that isn't even that aware that we're at war. Right. Uh, and uh, different issues that they face that people don't think about too much. Yeah. So that's an interesting area to explore, and it's a little outside of the box of what just happens in this house. Right. I, I never think of myself as that imaginative. Yeah. Uh, There's no wizards in any of this. Right. There's no other worlds. Nothing happens under the water. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So it it takes a lot for me to attempt to write about things I haven't personally experienced. It reminds me of uh, Adaptation, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Have you saw it? Of course. And he goes to the uh, McKee seminar Mm -hmm. and he goes like, what about a a movie where nothing happens? And he goes like, every day something happens. And his example (laughs) is he goes, the last of three goes, 
a man's best friend dies on the steps of a church. <laughs> it was just like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess things do happen. Yes, but that, that's a little bit to your style. Is that is that like things aren't? It's not the movie where the best friend dies mm-hmm. on the steps necessarily. We have a lot of like you said, and knocked up conflicts just kind of going away. Yeah. without any complaint. Like I, I mm-hmm. when you said that, I remembered that. But that does feel familiar to me. People resolve their marital problems behind closed doors sometimes. Sure. And you just pop back in their life and they're kind of gone. Well, I, I was uh, you know, trying to capture what life feels like. And that's different than when you're trying to make a movie that's either a broad comedy or a stylized comedy. If you're trying to do a stripped away mm-hmm. You know, it's still funny and heightened a little bit, but you're, you're trying to get close just to something. Just one ball out. Just one ball one out. One ball out. It's basically, <laughs> Knocked Up is the story of you and Leslie meeting, except one ball was out. Uh, you know, point. the thing is, uh, one ball out is real, two ball out is, is broad. It's too broad for me. <laughs> Keep it this side. And it's, uh, you know, and so I'm always like, you know, trying to decide, oh, should we do something broad and silly right now? Mm. You know, I... I was one of the writers of Robert Smigel and, and Sandler on You Don't Mess With the Zohan. So, you know. You've done silly. So I, I, I've i done silly. Like, Walk Hard is is silly. And every once in a while, it's fun to just do something, you know, ridiculous. Right. And then every once in a while, you try to get close to what I love about James Brooks or Cameron Crowe. Uh, and then other times, you're trying to be, you know, crowd-pleasing. Mm-hmm. Like, and watch like, that movie kill. Like Bridesmaids, you know, it's fully big time crowd pleaser. Mm-hmm. Four Year Old Virgin was like that. But other times you want to make movies where at the end it's like it's not actually that crowd pleasing because life isn't really that crowd pleasing right. most of the time. Right. And so every once in a while, you know, with funny people, I thought, nah, I just kind of want to show how rough it is. And right. it's hard and you struggle and then you just live to fight another day and. And and you just spin. Did you have to kick that around a lot? I have to imagine a movie where a man is sick. There had to be other versions of the script where it's like, let's have him die. Or- well, there was two versions of the script. I mean, there were two ideas that I was playing with. One was, what if somebody gets a disease and doesn't learn anything from it? <laughs> and the other was just a general exploration of, like, why are we interested in comedy? Mm. And what type of people are interested in it? And what led them to it? And, and has it been fulfilling? Mm. Or has it just been uh, chasing your tail, trying to please other people? And then one day I realized, oh, that could be the same movie. movie. Yeah. It was what, just a shower moment. Like, oh, maybe it's the comedian yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who gets sick. The last screenless place on earth, the shower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so you're aware the whole time, like maybe people will really connect to this in a big way, but they, it's still a little indie Mm -hmm. and not fully satisfying Mm -hmm. because life isn't usually fully satisfying because we know it's going to be hard the next day. And if, if, if you stay true to that, you, you know, you, you get endings like two guys in a supermarket talking about (laughs) balls jokes, which is what it was. Right. 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 Going back to that. Uh, Perfect. Uh, I don't know if you remember the joke that ended that movie there. uh, uh, Adam wrote a joke about, his grand, his grandfather fucking his grandmother, but not realizing that he was just actually fucking his own balls. <laughs> and I said to Gary Shandling, 
can you end a movie on a joke like that? And he said, you have to, yeah. because that's what two comedians would say to each right, other. Right, <laughs> what, what, what did you learn? I'm interested. I, th- I feel like this would be a, a question I'd like to be asked, is what kind of people do you think do do comedy? I don't know. It's funny for me because I didn't do stand-up for the last 20 years, and I just started again this year. Yeah. And I always enjoyed the company of comedians, and I like being part of that. That's certainly one of the main perks, right? I think I, that's covered in funny people's. Like you get to hang out with other comedians. Yeah, and I, I guess maybe at some point I got sick of it because I don't know. I sense back then, as everyone was struggling to get ahead, and people started to get weird or bitter or whatever. Maybe it wore on me because I had been a lot of years of just all comedians all the time. Yeah. Um, and I was also frustrated that I wasn't better at it. Mm-hmm. So well, you uh, must feel good now. I mean, you're you're killing it now. I, I've seen you. Uh, I enjoy it now because I just am old, so I have opinions. And back then, <laughs> when I was a kid, I didn't have any opinions. I mean, when you're in your early twenties, you, there's nothing to talk about, right? And I wasn't I wasn't that smart, so right. I didn't have like opinions about the world, and I didn't have that many good stories to tell, so I right. wasn't that interesting. I was interested in doing it more than I had anything. Uh, to say, I actually think that's a, a big unspoken frustration of the under thirty comedian. There, there's Pete Davidson is a, is a, a, a exception to that rule. I watched, I, I saw him way before SNL on stage, and I immediately asked him to do the podcast. It didn't work out because you know New York and stuff. But I'm looking at a kid where I'm just like, oh, he has opinions for some reason. Yeah. Lean is the same way. Yeah, when I was watching do. Girls, I'm just like, how is she able to live this age? While making fun of that age in the way that I would make fun of that age, you know, if I yeah. were that good, like, but have that perspective, a simultaneous perspective. You know what I mean? You're Absolutely. living it and commenting on it. I, yeah, I didn't have that at all. I was just so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just couldn't get a girl to like me, and I was just ridiculous. Yeah, I'm always. I always feel about ten years behind everybody else in terms of my <laughs> development as a as a as a person. Yeah. But, you know, now that I am older and, and doing comedy and I think about why people do it, I see, you know, a lot of people like me gravitating back to it. Yeah. And for a long time I thought maybe it is some sort of needy egomania that makes you want an audience to like you. And only a few years ago, maybe it was after I, I, I made Funny People, uh, I thought, I think doing it is a sign of self-esteem. Or can be a sign of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Because I thought, oh, I think I stopped doing it because I didn't like myself. Mm. And, I, and in my head, I, was, I would always think, shut up, Judd. No one cares what you have to say about anything. Mm. And then I learned to like myself a little more and like my opinions and thoughts more. And that's when I was able to write movies like Knocked Up and be uh, more forthcoming. Because I thought, oh, maybe my little stories are interesting to people. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing stand-up again. And I felt like, oh, this is like a sign that I like myself and I think I deserve to be heard. Right. And we so, start to realize that your stories are as good as the next guy's. But you spend so much – If you're, it sounds like you're like me. People would be like, well, what's weird about your family? And I'd be like, I don't know. They're completely yeah. normal. And now I'm like, my mother's in love with me. My father has ADD and is like really crazy. And my brother's this like kind of conspiracy kind of guy. Yeah. Like it's so it, maybe it's general meetings or I, yeah. like it's just the introspection of the mm-hmm. creative person. And then you start to go like, 
oh, these ordinary stories, it's a real R. Crumb sort of thing. Yeah. Like, where you're kind of like, oh, ordinary life. Actually, that was a P car. Ordinary life is like really heavy business, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Well, well the more honest you are, the more people connect. The more universal it is, the more specific right. you get. Right, that's right. And, and I finally accepted it. it. It doesn't mean I'm... It's not wrong to feel the need to do it. Right. And I, I think I shamed myself out of doing it for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And now that I do it, I, I think I'm genuinely happier as a person. I think I'm a little more confident. And it's nice to do it and not need to do it to pay the rent. So it, right. it removes what the original stressor was mm-hmm. for it. But uh, I definitely feel like it's affected my mood in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to be out there again. The audience is active. I mean, it's not that they're just there to get drunk and smoke cigarettes. You hit the ball of your idea off of them and the laughter and the response is them hitting it back in this way. So you can you can feel connected and you can feel that you're sharing some of your confidence and self-love. And I, I would say that, that that's similar in making a movie that's very personal. Mm-hmm. You're saying like, look, just my life and your life, our lives can be made into some sort of art. Yeah, you don't. Have, it doesn't have to be the born identity, right? It could be just Seth gets someone pregnant, right? Although if he did realize that he had you know kung fu skills at some point, <laughs> I wouldn't have been upset. Exactly. There is that version. I always say I would like the born identity more if it starred George Went. <laughs> it's more of an underdog. I like the underdog. When it, one of the first times I talked with you, I. Uh, Said, you said something about knocking your wife up, and I said, I didn't know you knocked your wife up. And you said, yeah, we made a movie about it. <laughs> and I felt really dumb. I felt real, real dumb. But that's true. I'm very interested. Leslie is, I, I've said on this podcast before, I think she's an enormous talent and so, so funny. And that's that's a real thing. See, I didn't know, so I'm assuming some people listening also didn't know that that's kind of how it came about. Well, it's, uh, you, know, you know, the movie... It, it, you know, it, it, it takes pieces from your life and it it turns into a fabrication filled with emotional truths and moments that are true. Right. And mainly stuff that's made up. Right. But at the core of it always was, uh, you know, almost two ages of the same couple. Mm. You know, there's Seth and Catherine and there's mm-hmm. Leslie and... Um, so it's more, about, it's more about that than, say, a literal truth of knocking a person up. Well, it, yeah, because it, our situation wasn't like that. We had been together uh, for you know uh, almost two years when we got pregnant. But I was well aware that it was scary. Mm-hmm. And it would be way scarier if it happened in one night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you, you feel that panic of, oh, my gosh, we're, we're in this together. Right. Uh, but you want to be in it together. But after one night, and if you didn't even know who the person was, it would be, it would be terrifying to slowly figure it out. Right. And maybe not be happy with the results. Right. And so a lot of it was through the prism of not who Seth actually is, but this, you know, this comic persona of young, porn-watching, pot-smoking, immature person. Right. And what happens if you have your shit together and you've got a good job at E? And <laughs> that guy gets you pregnant. So I wasn't like that at all. So in that sense, it's not true in any respect. Right. But then when you get into the second half of it, you know, the, the last half hour, everything that happened at the hospital, mm-hmm. 
is almost exactly what happened mm-hmm. to Leslie and I. And that's, you know, how movies work. They're just little pieces. And, right. and, and you know, you, you hire an actor and suddenly the whole thing changes. Paul doesn't really act like me mm-hmm. in real life. And Leslie and Paul as a couple are very different in how they relate to each other. It's very different than how Leslie and I communicate. So you get like a an element of what our issues are, mm-hmm. but it's also an imagining of Leslie and Paul's issues mm-hmm. if they were a couple. Right. And a fabrication of two completely different characters that you've just made up. Right. And that's how the movies work. So at the end, you know, it feels emotionally true, but it, it's, it, it's this other thing mm-hmm. that came out of all the different communications between the actors and all of our stories. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's what that's what's fun about it. Like sometimes I watch like Paul and Leslie, and I and I think, oh, what Paul's doing now really bothers Leslie. <laughs> it's not how I bother her; it's the way he would bother her. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? He's doing it's, it in his own way. Yeah, like this is what it would be like if they were fighting about something. Right. This is where he would be passive aggressive. Right, right, right. I'm passive aggressive in a completely different passive aggressive way. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to think, uh, you know, even though I haven't done it, mm-hmm. I'm like I know well. I, I have to think. I take longer poops because yeah. I'm enjoying a game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that happens all the time. Sure. In fact, when you when you're cohabitating with somebody, Val and I live together. That idea of like finding your little spaces. Mm-hmm. I've this isn't true, Valerie, but in other relationships, I used to just take really long showers. Like that oh, was sure. the only because I was so grossly codependent, mm-hmm. and I just smear into one thing with this person. Yeah where there was no place to breathe. And that's where I did all my, like, talking yeah. to myself and, like, freaking yeah. <laughs> out or playing the same music, this really ritualistic mm-hmm. sort of alone time. Now now I can be a little bit more like, yeah. I'm going to take the dog for a walk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, that's why it gets hard when you have kids, because there's so few moments that yeah. you're truly left alone, although now that my kids are 12 and 17. Right. They're very happy to not talk to me. <laughs> right. They don't want you around. Well, like today, they're doing their homework. They're watching Pretty Little Liars. And uh, they're happy I'm here in the house. Yep. But very happy not to talk to me. <laughs> and <laughs> when I was a kid, I didn't hang out with my parents when I was like 12 and 17. Yeah. Almost at all. I, there were some forced dinners. Right. Uh, but I wasn't saying, I can't believe they're not hanging out with me all afternoon. Right. And my kids love hanging out with us. But it's way more interaction right. than I had with my parents. Well, we always push on this podcast uh, the parent relationship. I like to say, who was your favorite? Uh-huh. <laughs> who was your favorite parent? <laughs> yeah, like who did you really click with? But so, a lot of people say just both. I mean, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a shocking question for me. It was my mom, uh-huh. and, and I had a dad that wasn't around as much, just because he was working. He wasn't like traveling mm-hmm. or anything. He'd come home at night. Uh, what was it like in your house? Well, my house was uh, just pandemonium. I mean, my parents, <laughs> uh, you know, fought like cats and dogs uh, for most of my life, and then like it was a daily routine. It's hard for me to even remember, but you know, getting worse and worse <coughs> through elementary school, and then they broke up in seventh grade and separated. My dad moved out. Then they got back together. Then they got divorced between eighth and ninth grade, and my mom moved out, and I lived with my dad. And then my mom moved to California, and Why? I lived with my dad and his girlfriend. The and, Gold Rush? And <laughs> <Why'd> <laughs> the your gold mom rush? My grandparents lived out there, uh, okay. and it was just, 
<laughs> it was uh, back, you know, when people would get divorced and they would really demonize each other. Mm. Mm-hmm. Your dad is the devil. <laughs> How can you talk to him? So you'd be guilty because you lived with your dad. Right. Uh, even though you had to. Was that your choice? Was it presented to you as a choice? Well, my mom moved out and I thought, I, you know, I want to stay with my friends. I, I put that above them. Right. I just thought, I want to live with my friends. And, okay, dad's staying in this town. I'll stay with him. If my mom stayed in that town, I would have stayed with her. I was not going to leave... Uh, you know, my my uh, world, I was trying to have some stability. And I thought mm-hmm. that was the stability, is going to school mm-hmm. and having my friends. And uh, so it was so chaotic. You couldn't even say, like, oh, I like this parent or that parent better. I just was like, I wish they weren't at war. Because mm-hmm. they were at war from then through college. Mm. From, like, eighth, well, literally from seventh grade to deep into college and post-college fighting at court. And... It was it was really brutal, and there was no let up. It did, there wasn't a quiet period. Mm. Uh, you know, I remember my mom didn't go to my high school graduation because my dad was there. I mean, it, it was that bad, and that you know, it motivated so much. It made me want to have a job. It made me want to take care of myself. Right. I, I'm sure it, it filled me with guilt. I was, uh, you know, thinking, you know. I'm just guilty about everything. I'm, if I leave the water running too long, I'm, I feel terrible. If I don't eat a potato, I'm like, oh, I grew that potato. <laughs> the potato. I'm just because I've been guilted about everything. Yeah, you know, my mom was no longer with us. Just, you know, how can you live with your father? How can you hmm. talk to him? Uh, you were like a, a bargaining chip, like a, like a soldier kind of in the world. There was no moment when I, w- I wasn't told by my mom everything she was unhappy about. She made me experience what she perceived as all of the wrongs and all of her pain. Mm. She never said, I'm not going to bother you with it. Right. Have your childhood. Right. Her way of experiencing it was getting you to experience it with her. And trying to get me on her side. Mm. And so who's to say who's right and wrong in a divorce? But certainly she was wrong for not shielding me from her pain. Mm -hmm. But it was almost like she had a a mental break from suddenly getting divorced. Hmm. She just didn't prepare to be out in the world. She thought she was going to be a homemaker her whole life. She never thought she'd have to get a job. And suddenly she's selling radio time Hmm. for the rock station in town. And she's a waitress at a diner. And, and she didn't see that for herself and and didn't uh, want that to be her life. So it was a never ending stream of serious conflict. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew at the time it would be the fuel to be a comedian. I was aware of it when it happened. I, I remember you wrote uh, that poem. I wrote a poem about it when I was a kid. Uh, I said, this is going to help me with my comedy shit. Um, and so in a way, it, it, it fueled all the energy I needed to succeed. But it makes you very hypervigilant and nervous mm-hmm, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you've been around that much conflict, and it's hard to just relax and say, not to be so obvious, fine. but isn't that where I know for me, I'm always just projecting myself onto the guest, so mm-hmm. <laughs> feel free to deflect it if it's not true. But my parents also argued a lot. Uh, I like to just put it lightly and say they just didn't really get along. Yeah, I was like, like, do you guys like each yeah. other? You know what I mean? 
So uh, there would be a lot of meals where there was so much tension. Often when I'd have a friend over, I would feel really bad for them. Talk about how your family is different. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, it's not like this. It's not like the last meal Mm -hmm. (laughs) on death row at your house. So I would start like literally putting my face in mashed potatoes and stuff because it was needed. Like. I make them laugh it's if a I could, fight. Yeah, if I, I'd make my mom laugh, probably yeah. easier. If I made my dad laugh, it was like really. Some, if I made my brother laugh, I mean, yeah, I should I should be a comedian. You know what I mean? I was like really getting there. I never had that. My parents were so in their own world. Really, that I don't remember that instinct to make my parents laugh to make things better because there was no way to make things better. Because it's just off the table. It was There was no way to like go, mom will be happy if I make her laugh. And I know so many comedians, like, that's their thing. But mom was not going to laugh. Really? Yeah. It was, it, was, it was past that point. So I didn't really share my sense of humor with them that much. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I did a little bit. But I didn't have, uh, that wasn't Where did it my become? main issue. Where, who, okay, again, I'm projecting. Mm-hmm. Even though there was tension in my house, uh, comedies were looked at as like great things. Mm. Um, it was important. They loved Carson and mm-hmm. they loved the funny pages. As silly yeah. as that sounds, like we always start every yeah. day with the funny pages. So it was important to be funny. Who kind of put that in you? It wasn't a parent? Well, my parents liked comedy. My dad loved uh, you know, Bill Cosby records. And we, we uh, talked about comedy a little bit. I think my dad had some aspirations in that area. He never told me that, but I think I found out later. Oh, really? He was interested in that. Well, your dad is Albert Brooks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> He's a really great comedian. <laughs> I just heard Albert Brooks is going to be at Largo when I perform there with Randy Newman, and I'm really upset about it because that's a major distraction for me. That, because, he, that he'll be in the crowd. Oh, he's coming. Yeah, that's a terrible uh. It's a nightmare. <laughs> I, I'm going to actually tell Albert, feel free to leave after Randy Newman because I'm going on after Randy Newman. Oh, that's Just because Randy Newman wants to leave. Yeah. And uh, hopefully Albert will leave <laughs> because I'll never be good enough to, uh, or not nervous that he's there. You've given this man work. <laughs> it goes so much deeper than that. It goes so much deeper than what that. What do you mean? I don't, there, there are certain people that you, you respect so much of that course, you can't of course. perform in front of them. And I think Norman Lear is coming, but that I'm excited about. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I think the... Uh, He's the, the Albert thing is going to put me over the edge. Yeah. They said, John C. Riley, Tim Heidecker, and Albert Brooks are coming. And I thought, that's not helpful. <laughs> that's not helpful. It's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> I don't want to know who, who's in the audience ever. Never, never, never. Paul McCartney was in the crowd at the improv one night. And they said, hey, Paul McCartney's here. And in my head, I just thought, Judd, they've made a mistake. Paul McCartney is not here. <laughs> and then I did my set. I had to convince myself he wasn't there. And then well, I you went, do 20 minutes on how the Beatles are overrated. <laughs> it's like, Jed, he is here. <laughs> what are you doing? And I went to say hello to him. And Mike Carano, uh, who, who works at the Improv, who's a great photographer, is there. And so I, I'm talking to Paul McCartney. And I'm giving him like the nod, like, take a picture of me and Paul McCartney. And he takes a picture with his iPhone. And then he sends it to me. Every picture is of the back of Paul McCartney's head and me. <laughs> he didn't get over, so you can't tell I'm with Paul McCartney. <laughs> I feel like you could have asked him to turn around. He seems like a gracious guy. He, he, 
Yeah, I got I got a little scared. But he went back again last week. Like he goes to the improv all the time. I was thinking about inviting him to that Largo show that I'm scared about Albert Brooks going to because I think he's in town right now just hanging around. And if he's there, at least you'll forget about Albert. <laughs> exactly. Maybe. You never know. <laughs> uh, it's interesting to see the your interest in getting back into stand-up, doing these Largo shows, and, and then also just doing, what, six sets the other night? Yeah. Hopping yeah. around? Well, that was, that's fun because I can't get out more than one night a week most of the time. So I, I'll go to the improv, the uh, meltdown show, then go to do three so- sets at the comedy store, and then go back to the improv, and then go to the Laugh Factory. Perfect. And just run run it hard. Yeah. Uh, but I usually I can't remember my jokes that well, and so I really feel like, oh, I'm not really taking advantage of this because I can't remember what I want to say yeah. enough to really uh, – take a good shot at trying some things because I just have a bad memory. It's also, I, I face that, I think every stand-up face is that, where you're like, I know I have a new bit and all I have to do is look at it. Like, I've already, like, written it out or written the notes. Mm-hmm. All I have to do is find the will to look at it before I go on stage. But it's so fragile. It's yeah. like the mojo is like the scared deer yeah. and you don't want to look at it. It runs away. Yeah. And you go up and you're just dictating it. You yeah. know what I mean? You're yeah. just saying the words and mm-hmm. you want to be fresh, but you also want it in there. And there's kind of no worse feeling when you're up there and you're like, I know this is a funny bit. I have a funny bit about sarcasm, <laughs> but all I'm saying is sarcasm. <laughs> like Seinfeld, remember? It's, it, sometimes it comes alive and you you start finding it on stage. But most of the time I don't. And I get a kind of a laugh on a setup. Right. I don't really have a punchline and I bail fast. Right. And I also realize, oh, this would work if I figured it out. Right. And most of the time I don't figure it out. So hopefully I'll get something figured out before I don't know what it is. Brooks is there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering what, like a Tony Robbins exercise is writing down like a goal and mm-hmm. then writing down what will happen if you achieve that goal and what will happen if you don't achieve yeah. that goal. So, like, you'll set a goal, like, I want to listen to my sets uh-huh. and take notes. What will happen if I achieve that goal? A better hour. A yeah. better album. Mm-hmm. Like, critical acclaim. Yeah. People will be like, this is one of the yeah. gay comedy albums. What will happen if I don't? I'll forget shit. Bitch yeah. will be gone forever. But, like, still, like, I kind of need to mm-hmm. do things like that. I haven't done that in a long yeah. time. I like uh, that you know the Tony Robbins stuff that well. <laughs> one of my goals was to remember the Tony Robbins goal-setting seminar. <laughs> so we that met Tony worked. Robbins when we were shooting The Cable Guy. I just remember being on a golf cart with him. And someone yelled to him, Hey, Tony, I love your tapes. I just borrowed them from my friend. And Tony Robbins yelled out, don't borrow them, buy them. <laughs> and then he turned to me and Betty goes, everyone's borrowing them. I don't make any money when they do that. <laughs> That's really funny. I'm the guy that will burn Tony Robbins CDs onto an iPod and give it to a family member. Yeah. Oh, sure. I, I, I love them. I, we did a funny sketch on the Ben Stiller show where Ben played a version of Tony Robbins. <laughs> that really made me laugh. But um, but I feel like jokes are almost like my book hoarding, where I buy books and I don't read them. I feel like I have premises that are undeveloped, and I don't bother developing them. Right. They're like books I don't read. Right, right, right. Just having it is enough. And then ho- sometimes on stage it becomes something, and sometimes it doesn't. I hate to encourage that behavior, but I I am, you know, I've been doing it about f- almost 15 years now, and, like, it happens. You'll be on yeah. stage, someone will yell out, like, turnips! And you'll go, like, oh, and then you remember the turnip yeah. joke that you wrote down. I'm saying, I've seen a turnaround of yeah. 12 years where yeah. I'm like, 
I've never done that bit, mm-hmm. and it just found its home, and then it gets on, you know, Conan the next mm-hmm. month or whatever. It's just, it, so it's okay. Well, we'll see. I'm here we'll to find out you. soon enough. How do you? One of the things I love talking to people about, uh, especially when you reach a certain level of public success, is how do you kind of reconcile helping family and stuff? Mm-hmm. For example, Dana Carvey was on. Mm-hmm. And he and a couple other people have said the same thing where it's like you want to help people. Mm-hmm. You might give them money or you might give them a job or something. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of haunted me. Dana was like, it never works. He was yeah. like, it's always a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But he'll keep doing it. Because especially like if you were like a successful contractor or something, like you really got some sweet contracts going. That's not going to be in – there's no like trade newspaper about that that – and it's not on Entertainment Tonight or whatever, whatever the show is. But, you know, like, you, you have a hit movie. People mm-hmm. are like, I, I have to imagine at holiday parties, family members that coming up to you, like Eminem says, <laughs> all of a sudden I have some 5,000 cousins. You know what I mean? Yeah. People come up and be like, that's a pretty sweet gig. must be nice. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> what do, I mean, it might be a little personal, but in general, what is your kind of feeling about that? Because it has to be hard. Well, I remember years ago, I was watching Dr. Phil and Louis Anderson was on. And Louis Anderson comes from an enormous family and yeah. has had all sorts of uh, issues with this, with different family members. And I just remember Dr. Phil was trying to tell him that you have to let people succeed or fail on their own. You're robbing them of their dignity mm. when you don't trust them to figure things out. For themselves, mm-hmm. and I remember he said, "You eat what you hunt; they eat what they hunt." <laughs> <laughs> but there's something to be said about that, I, I suppose. It's hard to know. I I've been all around the, <laughs> the bend on that one because I think uh, most of the time when people ask for help, they're mad at you just because they had to ask. They resent you uh, because you're in a position to help them and it makes them feel bad that they have to ask. Mm. So it's loaded the second it starts mm-hmm. and it's rare that you lend someone money and then a year later they write you a check. It usually doesn't work out that way. Right. It's happened. Right. Uh, Dave Rath borrowed money from me. The great really? manager, Dave Rath, my and manager. And he's almost the only person that ever paid me back. Oh my God! When he was starting minus ten percent. Uh, when he was starting his business, I think uh, <laughs> you know, I forgot. But he, but he paid me back, and he's really that's like, amazing. Yeah, he just uh, he wasn't in dire straits. He was just trying to you know get his business going, and yeah, and I, it wasn't that much money. But but I, I always uh, respected that because he was the only person that ever right did that, uh, and I think it's uh, you know it's a difficult thing. It's weird. To talk about because when you do well, you're instantly filled with survivor's guilt. Mm. Because there's nothing about money that you know that's that satisfying. It's nice to be able to pay your bills and not be stressed out. But I was saying to somebody, but now all you think about is, oh man, when the the waters flow into the cities. And the drought hits. I need to build a protective underground layer for my children. And considering I need to do that, 
I don't have that much money. <laughs> I need uh, aquifiers. I need a underground air conditioning and hard drive system. And Where am I going to find three hundred miles of <laughs> copper coil? <laughs> How am I going to create a situation where my kids can live underground for two hundred and fifty years? <laughs> and you need the words of L. Ron Hubbard yeah. inscribed in gold. Exactly. So it's uh, so you never really uh, are doing as well as you think you are doing. But people really struggle and. It's such a fluke when you do well because I I was interested in comedy. I was going to do it. I mean, this is like the old stupid thing people say, but I would have done it if it if I didn't get paid. But right. I, I it really was something that if I was a dishwasher uh, at a restaurant, I would I would find a way to do it at night for free. Right. And so when suddenly the world says. Oh, that thing you would do for free? I'm going to give you a lot of money right. for doing it. And people have all sorts of hobbies. They might like fishing. <laughs> You'd be the best fisherman in the world. Like, you're not going to get as much uh, money as Melissa McCarthy makes. Right, right, right. You're just lucky that your dumbass hobby, like, maybe you're a stamp collector and out of the blue, you own a stamp that's worth a million dollars. Like, right. holy shit, I didn't think stamp collecting right, would lead right. to me owning this. And um, <laughs> so it, it feels ridiculous. Yeah. It's just a, a complete fluke that the thing that I turned to when I was lonely as a child right. is marketable. Right. And so for that reason, when anyone else doesn't have a dream or a, or they have a dream but it's not financially – helpful right you feel terrible because you feel like this is so stupid right do you walk around kind of going like i uh, i hate the term blessed Mm -hmm. it would just got ruined for me but do you walk around feeling lucky going like holy shit how did we get here do you ever look look at leslie or your family and just like how did how did this happen well jim carrey uh, would always joke around when he first did well and walk around his house and he would look at a lamp and go, jokes bought this. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's right. Jokes bought this. And it's great. Yeah. And, and I do, I definitely feel very grateful. But down deep, I always think, well, I'm not that grateful because I'm going to die. <laughs> you know, if I had a sense I was going to go to heaven or right. I had like deep spirituality, but I actually feel like, yeah, this is just like a pleasant moment before some shit goes down. Right, right, and right. So my lack of a spiritual foundation makes this feel like absurd and crazy. Right. Not just joyous. It's like, oh, this is like almost like a misdirect before I get my head cut off. Well, it is a little bit in service of the world. Not that that's a bad thing. Yes. I mean, yeah. this isn't like a... I'm, I'm right there with you. Sharing your art, sharing your truth is, I think, a spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. But do you ever get tempted? This is going to sound crazy because it's just something that I think about maybe. Is sometimes I'm like, okay, we'll do this thing. We'll do that thing. We'll do the next five things. And then when I'm this age, I'll just become a monk. <laughs> like I'll, I'll just yeah. try. I'll devote the rest of my life try and squeeze it in at the end to being yeah. like, and I've made complete peace with, to be religious with my impermanence, even more just like solely devoted to the eternal. Because just as you're saying, no matter how big your number comes in, in the material, you're kind of like, yeah, I still die. You know what I mean? Donald well, Trump still dies. Well, in the material way, there's not much materially that's that satisfying i mean it's just nice to be able to order what you want at the restaurant right but other than that i don't really do anything (laughs) i can go on vacation and so twice a year i go on vacation it's still kind of the same place anyone goes on vacation i'm not like you know 
going to Madagascar or anything, <laughs> like go to Hawaii or I go to New York. It's right. I don't really do anything that's that extravagant. Right. Uh, but so, so to me, I, I, you know, I like the fact that I can be, uh, you know, a pleasant, charitable, positive force. Right. But I don't have a sense of, uh, relief. Mm hmm. Because I, I, I would, you know, you know what they say, like that people who are like solid are really happy. And then if you are, if you made a, like a lot of money, that's when people get really unhappy, mm. you know, like people who can pay their bills and, but, yeah. but, it, but it gets worse. I, I, I joke about this in stand up. Like, that's why, you know, Bill Gates is trying to turn shit into water because you're always looking for a new goal mm. it's not mm-hmm. enough he should do stand-up exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's basically turning shit into water some nights because <laughs> yeah, you realize like oh money didn't really make me happy right i never thought like money would make me happy what makes me happy is being productive i like being in the middle of a project mm-hmm. I, I i never thought well that goes back to the photos in the office yeah i just like to be in the middle of something that i think is going to bring stability right which is probably deeply unhealthy i'm I, i'm not comfortable in not doing anything. I like feeling a process that might be moving in a positive direction. Sure. It, I guess it's a form of workaholism. I just I just like to be in motion. So when movies come out, I actually don't get that happy when they do well. I just feel a sense of, oh, I escaped humiliation. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, oh, that humiliation, that kind of sucks. But that good and the bad of that isn't what it's about. It's really about uh, feeling... A reason to get out of bed. Yeah, and just... And maybe I'm, I can make life okay by what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. I don't ever stop and go, hey, I don't need to work this year. Mm-hmm. That'll bring me all the joy. Mm-hmm. Like some of my relief comes in writing a joke. Mm-hmm. Gives me some sense of comfort. Right. That goes back. I was going to ask how you feel when you get off stage. For for me, it, it, I've never done cocaine, but it, it must be like that. If that's why people get so into it, if it's got to be like that. When it goes well, I mean, I, I I get a kick out of it in a way that I never did before because I wasn't that good before. So even just being better than I used to be, I have a, a more of a sense of pleasure from it. Yeah, uh, and I like being able to express myself. Um, but and being uh, listened to too, right? Yeah, being heard is is, is important, especially when you were a kid and you weren't heard. That's your parents were fighting, That's and saying. you kind of that is the core aspect of it. Oh, no one listened to me when I begged them to stop fighting and to just let me be a kid, right? And so it is nice. It is nice to be to be heard. That's that's me all right there. It's like oh, it's it's a wonderful thing to get a therapeutic benefit, yeah, from your profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's that's why I wanted to do stand up again because I thought I'm not getting enough joy out of my creative endeavors, mm-hmm. and I'm so stressed about not pulling it off. And when you make a movie, it takes years to make a movie, and then you find out in like one day if you succeeded or failed. Mm-hmm. And so, if it went great, you maybe you get a day of pleasure and some pleasure when you're making it, but you're stressed for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the pleasure was beating the amount of stress I was under mm. where I kind of get a kick out of like trying to write a set list and doing a set and then it's over and no one gives a shit the second <laughs> it ends. And I get more pleasure in that. Right. Then it's a in, little bit more. Sorry. I was just saying, you know, the, the terror of, 
oh God, the movie costs this much money. I hope it does well. I hope that actor or actress's career takes off the way I'm trying to help them. Right. Like, like I enjoy that, but it's also intense. Like right. It's intense in a way that's hard for other people to understand because I'm so codependent. You know, I want Amy Schumer's movie to be gigantic, and I want her career to take off and for her to be able to continue to make big movies. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I invest, but it's, I also do it in a deeply codependent, I'm responsible way, I hope I didn't screw up. Mm. Uh, and that makes me do a good job. That's the weird part. It's why I do a good job, but it's also uh, a, a weird, pointless, emotional burden right. that is only weird Jewish Bullshit guilt, right? And and it's uh, something I'm, I've been a lot better about. I've probably been better on Trainwreck than any movie I've ever done in terms of not having my normal burden. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't have that when I do stand up because there's I don't feel like I've let anyone down if I bomb. Right. It's yeah. just you. It's just me, and I don't care that. And then much. it's gone. Yeah, I don't care that much. I mean, I right. I am nervous in a great healthy way, but I, I don't lose sleep after a bad set right. in the way I did as a kid. Right. And, and it, it, it's such a more immediate thing. It, it's putting you in the moment. It, it feels a little bit like it's just this. It's not let's film this and cut it. Mm-hmm. It's just this. It's just you in that room right there. I guess it, it must be like what boxing is like. You just have to be so focused and right in the moment or tightrope walking that where there's nothing else going on. Right. You know, with stand-up, I'm I, you know I'm not an in-the-moment person. I really have to relax and meditate, try to get in the moment in all aspects of life. And in stand-up, it, it is one of those places where you know you, you, you're not observing things from a distance. Right. You know, it's going down, and you're right there. And, and to me, it feels healthy, and I feel like I bring it into the rest of my life that I'm I'm learning what presence is. Right. By standing in front of people, and I can bring it back to the house. <laughs> it's true. I will say that after I said that I get that cocaine sort of feeling, but then I am right there. You know what I mean? Like it, it continues yeah. on. It actually continues on the next day. Uh, we're, we're doing good on time. We're, I mean, meaning whenever we want to stop, we've done enough. <laughs> it's certainly we, we filled it. This is the time where I was just like wonder. Did any of this make sense? I could begin like the criticisms. I'm like, oh, I talked about success too much, and no. that's probably irritating. I don't think I was funny at all. <laughs> we stopped uh, trying for to be an funny hour and eleven minutes, which is a long time to not be funny. We're two funny guys. <laughs> I, I, you know, I usually listen to Pete's podcast. He's cracking up the whole time, so loud, and there's been none of that. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> and then I do get a core who cares. Yeah. Which is why I stopped doing stand-up in the first place. Because I do have a voice like that's always saying, shut up, no one cares. Yeah. Which is, it's hard to uh, get, get well, you rid see, of. You're doing better with yourself, love. But I, I really think that's one of the keys to a better world is mm-hmm. if, if people can kind of not go around and blab every thought that they have mm-hmm. and be self-important. Yeah. But get to the point where like, I'm asking, I care, that's enough. Yeah. People tune in, they care. That's true. Little care circle. Anyone who's an hour into the Pete Holmes podcast right now. They're committed. 
So something. I don't know what they're going to get out of it other than, wow, Judd's still a whiny Jew. I guess that didn't go away. Thank God. <laughs> I'm tired from working all day. You're getting me in an emotionally vulnerable place. No, I know. I'm wondering how to like really milk that and get I, you to answer questions. I'd like to milk it. I don't, I don't know uh, what topic would get me there. I remember I went to this uh, chiropractor, uh, uh, acupuncturist. I guess she was just an acupuncturist. This woman in Hawaii, she was in her 70s, and this Japanese woman. And she was asking about the fear of death. She was like a little psychic, too. Mm. And she said, you know, you're supposed to fear death when you're younger. And that's kind of what life is about. Like, you're holding on tight. She goes, and then when you get older, you'll see. You just naturally start letting go. Mm. And then you let go. And I thought, that didn't make me feel better at all. <laughs> a, little, a little information there. Well, that's the, that's the Joseph Campbell quote that I've read on this podcast. I read on the Rob Hewell episode, which I, I try and ingest, uh-huh. where he says, when you can identify not with the light bulb, but with the light, mm-hmm. then you can look at your body kind of impartially, mm-hmm. at like, a, like the passing away of an old car. There goes the tire. There goes the wheel, there's a crack in the windshield, instead of taking it personally, which is one of those great mystical things is like, don't take anything personally, including your own degradation. But I remember when I interviewed Deepak, you were like, talk to him about, I don't want to be a drop in the ocean. I want to watch Netflix. I want to have my family. I want to have a big hoagie. I'm adding that. But like, you you, uh, didn't want to uh, surrender to that idea, Mm. which is completely... Understandable. I'm not saying I can either. What was his answer? I, I remember we were talking about it. I can actually play it. Should we play it? Do you want to? I guess I'm going to be so mad at Deepak right now. <laughs> I don't like the fact that he thinks he has it all figured out. Because uh, <laughs> I hear like, people like, oh, but then maybe you'll die and you'll be part of a tree. Like That's not satisfying <laughs> to me in any way. There's no answer when I really break it down from him or anyone else. That really makes me feel better. Yeah. Like, you know, you're not a drop in the ocean. You are the ocean. Or you are God. Like, none of it feels good to me. Right. And uh, except eating cupcakes so I'm just in a haze. Right. And, you know, watching an old letterman on YouTube. Right. <laughs> that does feel yeah. as close as I'm going to get most of the time. I'm with you, man. A lot of the times, as, as deep as I get into it, sometimes I am left with, mm-hmm. you know, just good old human despair, where I'm yeah. like, none of that really worked. I'll tell you one that's really been getting me going lately, which was from Richard Rohr, which is love is saying yes to what is. Mm-hmm. And that really, that that kind of addresses everything. Well, I agree with that. And I think that's... but it. That's makes sense, but it's hard to live. There's another one where people say, like, you have to love the mystery. Mm. Which you could say, <laughs> you know, like, you believe that, or it's complete bullshit. But I, I you know, I never can really get over that hump. Yeah. So that's probably why, like, I, I focus on family, which is the one thing that, you know, makes you happy and feels important uh and and work and being funny i think well that's a good battle against the absurdity of all of this yeah at least in my job i'm saying this is all fucking nuts and painting different paintings which call it out as crazy 
because I, I never know if people, when they have answers, are they just an insane denial, wonderful denial, mm. or do they really believe it? I remember I was at this. I was. I was. Uh, I went to see you two on Jimmy Fallon, and afterwards, the band went to a restaurant, and I, I knew the manager, know the manager, and got to sit and talk to Bono and. And he talks about religion in a way that makes you want to believe it because mm. he believes it and he's so smart about it. And he talks all about all of it as a metaphor, mm-hmm. you know, that these are all metaphors that's that a, you take lessons from. Right. It's not literal. Well, that's the other thing Richard Rohr said. He says metaphor is the only language we have to talk about God. And so that, that I can get closer to. And then like a general really shallow, if Bono believes it, it must be true. <laughs> That's all I'm hanging on to in life as a human being. Right. Bono seems to believe it. If only we could see through his blue colored glasses. I like his songs. He's, he must know something. Right. But uh, I do think sometimes I'll get older and really try to dig deep into uh, the Bible and just force myself to give... To give myself over to it. Although I just bought this little tiny book that's supposed to explain Judaism. And I don't know if I'll ever read that either. It's a little book? It's a tiny book. that just You just open it and it's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> or as my family always said, nobody said life was fair. Oh, God. That's the only religion I got. Nobody said life was fair. Oh, boy. And next year will be our year. <laughs> next year will be our year. Really? There was a lot of that. Yikes. Well, that's another uh, spiritual thing that I've really held on to is don't postpone your happiness. That's something that I really try and hold on to. But what is your spirituality right now? I'm kind of in one of those places where I'm like feeling it, feeling the idea of consciousness, feeling that I'm a part of this thing called consciousness or that you could say is God. And I'm playing my part in that. And I'm acting out this whole sort of idea that we can understand and kind of bring meaning to God, for lack of a better term, by living our lives and witnessing it and being present for it. That almost makes sense. (laughs) You almost had me there. You almost had me there. But halfway through that, I thought to myself, but why do you even have to think that? Uh, you, You don't. I think any good, any any mystic worth his salt is just going to laugh. My friend Rob told me this great story about seeing uh, Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama yep. meeting each other, and all they did was tickle each other instead of like hugging or mm-hmm. they just tickle each other because they get it. We can't hold on to any of this stuff too tightly. Mm-hmm. So that's why, like, it never—it's not disheartening at all for me to hear you say like, "Who gives a fucking shit?" And maybe it's all garbage. It's like that's a great space to step in as well. It's like. That's the right way to put it. It's like, in this moment, how are you with God? Because it should change and it should evolve. Some gods need to die. Mm-hmm. Some gods need to be resurrected ideas of God. Well, in my book, I, I interviewed Eddie Vedder, and he said, I don't know if this was an idea that he that someone had expressed to him, uh, that he doesn't believe in any religion's because if he chooses, it closes him off to all the other religions. Mm-hmm. And so he likes to just be open to all of it. Well, I like that idea. Fundamentalism is, is the death of, I think, a flourishing spirituality. That yeah. might be a controversial thing to say. I don't know. But again, Joseph Campbell mm-hmm. says you need to study other religions, mm-hmm. which is interesting if, you're, if you did want to read a book about... I, w- I don't know if I'd just read the Bible, but maybe a book about the Bible. Mm-hmm. I don't know. 
But like when, or the Bhagavad Gita or anything, mm-hmm. when we study other faiths, we have a chance at understanding the metaphor because we're not looking at them with the burden of literal truth. To be honest, when you're telling me about knocked up and you're in that creator position where you're like, okay, here's how Leslie and I truly met, but here's how I'm going to heighten the stakes. Because why? Mm-hmm. Because I can inject more truth by telling a lie. Literal truth is the lowest level of truth. That's another Richard Rohr thing. Mm -hmm. It's boring. We need stories. We're in this rational, you know, or is it called post-rational, whatever it is. We want to measure, we want to analyze, and that's why I have an iPhone, and that's why this microphone is recording our voices right now, that dualistic sort of thinking. But then when you get into the mysteries, the really unknowable things, we actually need some things that are technically Horseshit. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, that, that, that makes some sense. I mean, when I'm doing my stories, I, you know, I notice that they're all the same. Uh, the way a lot of people's work is about saying the same things in yeah. different ways. That, the, that it's all about just people trying to figure out a way to be kind to other people and to themselves or trying to make a connection. Mm-hmm. So... You know, the the old virgin is just like a guy who's living in shame, who doesn't think he's lovable, who finally takes a risk right. to see if he can be loved right. and find somebody to accept him as he is. Right. So at the end, he says, uh, I'm a virgin. I always have been. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just like, that's it? Yeah. And that's the point of the movie. Right. He's just so afraid of that moment. Right. And then the moment she's like, oh. And then she goes... Oh, that's kind of a good thing. This is not some pig who's been <laughs> fucking everybody. <laughs> and all the movies seem to have an ending like that, where yeah. Seth and Catherine just driving off. We're just going to give it a shot. We don't know if it's going to work. Right. Just or, for the baby, the baby's worth a shot. Right. Even though we're weird and different and it probably won't work out. Hmm. But it's worth us getting to know each other. Right. And... Uh, and and everything is like that. Martin started eating the grilled cheese and the entomans. Yeah, kind of like that's his like shame. He's not ashamed of it necessarily, but we're kind that's of- it. Well, comedy as his escape from the absurdity of his situation. Right. That these people who point out how ridiculous everything is brings him comfort. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, but so all the movies are just you know like Harold Ramis. I don't know. He didn't use these words, oh, but I, I always take it, this yeah. from him that. It's just different ways to talk about how to try to, uh, you know, not to be a dick. You know, like, okay, like he was a, a Buddhist, but, you know, I know if you would call him an existentialist, but he just thought, well, if this is life, I can choose to be a good person or a bad person. I guess I choose to be a good person. Yeah. And that's all there is. Right. Like, well, I don't know. It seems like that'd be the better way to go. Right. And it's a, it was as simple as that. And that connects to me right in the simplest way like all right i'm gonna make movies and tell stories where i'm just saying you know try to get along try to find love try to be nice to yourself right and that's all any of the episodes of the shows are that's all any of it is but that's that's what we're talking about that that putting the pain on the pedestal Mm -hmm. you know what i mean instead of putting some sort of false idea of holiness out there and saying like Here's the story about the guy who's who's perfectly fine. When we open the movie mm-hmm. with the Viagra guy, mm-hmm. because he's forty, <laughs> you know, yeah. we we actually grace is increased, redemption mm-hmm. is increased. And we say I say that all the time because you know it's a it's a Jesus quote, mm-hmm. or we could be literal and say Jesus said, 
that the summation of the law is love your neighbor as mm-hmm. yourself and love God. And the God part to me mm-hmm. is have a respect in that kind of Harold mm-hmm. Ramesy way for what the world is, the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. Not saying like let's reject yep. the bad and only embrace the good, but in that what mm-hmm. we call existential way of letting both blend into one thing, one gray yeah. thing that we don't even judge one way or the other with our rational brains. We just go, that's what it is, and I will love that by saying yes to it. And then I will also be what I consider a good person based on my my instincts and my but why do you, But why do you need anything other than those two sentences? You don't. But that, that was his point. <laughs> yeah. But then there's a whole long book and right. all other nonsense. And Well, then there's a, a, other gospels yeah. where it repeats that and other ones where it leaves that out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like That's it, where it gets complicated. It's Somewhere a, in there you can kill the Jews. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people find a way well, that to... Well, that was hot Jew on Jew action. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's like reinterpret or, you know, use all these ideas for power or control. Right. When... I do agree with that. That's all I believe. Right. And it's all I try to teach my kids is like, you know, if you're being kind to people and trying to be kind to yourself, everything will be fine. Right. If you put everything through that filter all day long, yep. everything is better. That's why. And that's all, there, that's all you can tell a kid. And and when we get older, we start, I start talking. Uh, uh, considering ideas like, mm. oh, Judd is the reflector. Mm. He's a sacred mirror, as mm. we call it. He's God. I'm God. But if it helps me mm. love you as my neighbor mm. to go, Judd is God, or that homeless person mm. is God, or the guy that wants to cut in front of me in traffic is God, then that gets you there. Yeah. We're all just trying to get back to that childish, simplistic yeah. way of going, be kind, motherfucker. Yeah. Be kind. Like, be yeah. kind and be kind to yourself. What, yeah, one of the only... I've only had a couple of real spiritual moments. Hmm. One was I was in Japan at a temple and a monk was so green showing Japan. us around. What's that? Green Japan, not like Tokyo. Uh maybe it was Kyoto. Oh Kyoto. It might have been the place where the world's largest Buddha or something. <laughs> so uh this one really works. <laughs> so you know you uh, you get your, your monk guide yeah, or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I pulled a connection with some monks. You know, donated to the monk church. I know uh, and, uh, the manager at the U two restaurant. And I know this one monk in Kyoto. I've dropped a lot of names. I dropped Bono and this monk, and <laughs> whose name was Bono. Uh, and but he said to my kids, he was talking about Buddhism. My kids were really little, and he said, "When you're a kid." You see everybody as your friend, and when you get older, you forget. Mm. And I don't remember his exact words, but he basically was saying uh, Buddhism is trying to remember that. Right. That everyone's your friend the way you felt like when you were a little kid. Right. And I thought, oh, that's beautiful. That's it. That's all. That's uh, just another way of... uh, Saying that. But that's the that's the big course in miracles, which I haven't even read mm-hmm. the whole thing. But it's kind of like when you see a thing, you're not really mm-hmm. seeing the thing. Mm-hmm. You're seeing your conditioning. I, I'm looking at you mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm looking at my memories of you. Oh. I'm looking at a table. I have my memories of a mm-hmm. table. Literally, I was looking at this round table and it reminded me of the table that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. It's not. 
You know what I mean? You're not seeing anything as it is. And you're also not seeing any opportunity or any moment for what it is. You're going, this is the evening. I'll probably go to bed. When really you could, you know, go out and sit and look at the stars yeah. and contemplate your existence. Yeah. You know, Because the the moment is limitless. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're so conditioned and, and it helps us to limit things into these little bites. This is a table. It'll probably be this way. This is jet. It'll probably be this way. And it, it kind of dulls the color of life. And then the easiest thing to do that is to call certain people enemies. Yeah. These are my enemies. That's why mm-hmm. I say this all the time. It's one of the reasons why racism is popular is it, it helps you close off huge sections. I don't like women. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't like uh, Puerto Rican people. You know what I mean? Uh, because people are panicking. There's too much happening. And they're also just kind of filled with hate. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about Eckhart Tolle and the moment. And I I really appreciate your dissent, actually. The Mm -hmm. fact that, you know, I I gave you those cards. They're there on your desk. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to see that. The the idea that there are these little nuggets that at some times will take you into a a space. Mm -hmm. I'll say... One of those says, like, realize deeply that the present moment is all you ever have. Mm-hmm. That That's one of the cards. Okay, some days you read that, and you get it, and colors are more vivid, sounds are more beautiful, your children don't bother you, Leslie, you, you have compassion and empathy, even though she might be in a bad mood. It, it's funny to you. Mm-hmm. Another days you read that, and you go, like... I still have to take a dump because I ate Del Taco and <laughs> I'm horny for my my sister's friend. And what does that mean? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Some days you just can't get there. And mm-hmm. I don't see enough people saying what I like to say, which is some days I can feel just like a Franciscan monk. And 20 minutes later, I can be a complete asshole who just wants what he wants when mm-hmm. he wants it. Like you said, I just want to eat cupcakes until I'm in a haze. <laughs> Same person. Well, what... what- I take from that, which I try to say to my kids, and sometimes if one of my daughters is really upset, and, you know, really upset and flipping out and worried about things, I'll just say, well, you know, you're just sitting on the couch right now. Everything's fine. We're, mm-hmm. just, we're here in this room. That's right. We're just sitting on the couch. And I, I like what, there's an Eckhart Tolle tape where he talks about, you know, I'm just sitting here. I'm eating a banana. <laughs> then I'm going to get up. I'm going to walk out of this room. Yeah, and I'm gonna get in the car, and I can just kind of stay stay there. Yeah, and everything is fine. So that I, I try to think about that, and it does make me feel better. Like those philosophies uh, make me feel better because when I, I, I think about big, big picture stuff, I, I totally melt down. Mm. It's like when uh, alcoholics say, "I can only think about not having the next drink. Mm. I can't think about never drinking again." Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about just I've never heard that. That's being alive. <laughs> <laughs> I could only think, what time do I get to get up tomorrow? Yeah, but what a how tired will I be? What a great strategy! I mean, yeah. it, it's it's too much. It's too much to let it all in. Yeah, I, I have a lot of bits about that. The, the amount of things we're shutting out, and that's mm-hmm. kind of part of the delight of movies and and mm-hmm. stand up is that we can kind of like glimpse into that and go like, isn't it weird that we're floating in space? Or whatever it happens yeah. to be. And we can kind of let go of some of that repressed anxiety that we all have. Well, that's a funny part of the book. There's a moment in the book when I'm interviewing Jerry Seinfeld and I'm asking him about his spirituality. And he says, you know, when we were doing Seinfeld, I had a picture from the Hubble telescope of space. I hung it in the writer's room and it always you know, made me feel better, gave me perspective. Because if you had an argument about the show or something, you just remember... 
that you are a speck of dust in yes. a sunbeam. And I said to him, I go, that's actually the worst thing I could hang, hang on the wall. Like, that actually would right. make me feel terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't like thinking I'm a speck of dust. And he's like, oh, no, it makes me feel so much better. Right. And that's the difference between me and him. Like, I still don't yet. Have you done much comfort of that? I did do mushrooms a few times. One time I took a girl to see MC Hammer. (laughs) And then we did mushrooms afterwards. I tried to fool around with her. She said no. And then for three hours I made her tell me exactly why she wouldn't do it. While on mushrooms? While on mushrooms. (laughs) Definitely a mistake. I got way too much information. And then another time I did mushrooms in Las Vegas. I walked around for an hour straight talking like Bill Cosby. Uh, obviously, this is a long time ago, pre-accusations. And for an hour, oh, at least an hour, I just went, and then we had to flush the turtle down the toilet because the turtle died and had to tell the children that we have to have a funeral for the turtle for hours and hours. And then we went to see a, a show uh, and it was a variety show, and there was a guy who had this like marionette, and the marionette had to get on a box. The marionette keeps trying to get on the box, and that's the whole thing. Like the the guy is uh, preventing the marionette from getting on the box, and so the whole thing is the struggle of the marionette to climb up this box. <laughs> and then we're driving home. Uh, we had uh, uh, gone to see Frank Sinatra on mushrooms. And we were talking about this time when we were in Vegas and we saw this marionette bit. Mm. And then I just started laughing and I couldn't stop laughing about the marionette not being able to get on the box. <laughs> and I'm like, and the marionette, he, and I knew the name of the marionette. I can't remember his name. It was like Toto or something. <laughs> and all Toto wanted was to get on the box. And that fucking puppeteer wouldn't let him on the box. Every <laughs> fucking night, three shows a night, that puppet's like, you won't let me on that fucking box. All I want is on that fucking box. And I'm on mushrooms. I can't stop laughing for like, <laughs> 30 minutes and I'm laughing so hard I'm, tears are pouring down and then it gets to the point where my friends are debating whether or not to take me to the hospital because I just can't stop laughing at the absurdity of yeah. and I really felt it like that puppet trying to get out of the box and that puppet is me uh, yeah but uh, I, and I couldn't stop laughing and then I, we slowly came down over the course of whatever 30 minutes and then when when the feeling of the mushrooms went away I realized that there was no bad moment of the come down. And all night I kept saying, I think this is the best night of our lives. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to call you guys tomorrow. We have to see. Was this the best night of our lives seeing Frank Sinatra on mushrooms? And then the next day I called everyone. I'm like, it was. (laughs) But I didn't have that kind of a a spiritual experience. Right. Just during Frank Sinatra, I looked around and I thought – I get Frank. Yeah. I get Frank. And then my second thought was, and I believed it, every single person in the Greek theater tonight is going to get laid. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he's going to die. You're no. Like, no, no, it's going good for everyone tonight. Everyone here. Frank is doing it. He's putting his magic on everybody. <laughs> exactly. Nancy with a smiling face? With a laughing face. Yeah. So I never had like a spiritual breakthrough. Yeah. Uh, and then I was so into mushrooms for just whatever. This is like a two-month period uh, in 1989 or 90. 
that my friend who got the mushrooms, I said, hey, how do we get more mushrooms? He's like, yeah, I can't find the guy. He kind of disappeared. And then years later, I realized that he knew I was about to become a mushroom addict. <laughs> and, and, and he pretended to have lost the contact. <laughs> you know, it was like a gift. Because the whole time I thought, why does anyone smoke pot or drink alcohol? Everyone should just do mushrooms like every night. That's like, a real there's mushroom. No, there's, there's no downside right. to this. And I meant it. And I'll tell you, if that guy handed me five pounds of mushrooms, yeah, I'd be living in New Mexico right now. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you questions nobody's ever asked you. Okay. Do you feel a link between your libido and your creativity? <laughs> in the sense that I was always so insecure sexually that my nervousness about that has driven a lot of what I've written about. I mean, mm-hmm. the 40-year-old virgin is just the terror of being a bad lay. <laughs> and and so uh, that, you know, I had a lot of kind of early weird sexual experiences. Uh, I've told you this story before about, you know, when I was, I, I, I think it was between, might have been between ninth and 10th grade, could have been between 8th and ninth grade, where I went to camp and I had this girlfriend and we just used to make out then she came and visited me and slept over and it's a terrible story but we started fooling around and suddenly she just jammed my hand down her pants and I had never considered touching a woman's vagina I never thought about what you would do I don't think I even heard about the 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 concept the overall of, climate uh, yeah of what what you would do like it was pre even the conversation of if I did that what would the action be yeah and so I just had my hand there. <laughs> under and, the panty. Uh, yeah. And it was just like hot and wet. And, <laughs> and I just thought, I'm going to vomit. I, 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 it just scared me. But at the same time, I thought, I beat my friends to third base. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm the first guy to get to third base. So yeah, I both yeah. was like, what do I do? And I'm the champion. <laughs> and then after me doing nothing, because I just just laid it there. <laughs> <laughs> I did nothing. There was no movements. You were just counting the moments to just, when you could remove what it. What the hell is happening right yeah. now? Uh, Tara and Joy simultaneously. And then she put her hand on me. I thought that was years away from happening. So in a way, it was like a molestation in some way. Yeah. Because I, 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 don't, I had never ejaculated. I had never masturbated. I, I just hadn't thought about it. Hmm. Um, and the whole time I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to pee on her. Don't pee on her. Don't pee on her because I just felt like something wants to come out. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if I ejaculated or not. I have no idea. I just know at some point it just stopped. Yeah. And so, and to this day when you come, you go, I'm peeing. <laughs> and so I had all these like early experiences that were very out of control. Yeah. And, uh, and so I always found bad sex really funny or yeah. just not being able to handle it right as something i like talking about because i always did that panic as terror as terror inducing as it was is hysterical yeah. i knew it was hysterical my right. reaction to it right like what is going on also there's something very inherently funny about something that we're all culturally especially men supposed to really love and want all mm-hmm. the time and then you get there and you're yeah. like 
why is it this room full of clown dicks or something like it's like such an awkward strange I thing. always thought it was so weird that like oh my god I'm supposed to walk around and and see half the population and want to put myself in them yeah like I knew it was like very bizarre you want to dock uh, yeah, and I didn't I didn't like I wasn't like as a person who's an overthinker yeah I wasn't just like an animal on pure animal instinct I always had the distance that made it seem crazy right so when I was single I felt weird hitting on women and talking to women because I thought if I walk up to a girl in a bar and say, hey, how's it going? Can I buy you a drink? I knew that she knew what I was saying is, is there any situation where you would let me put my penis in you? That's so funny. And that really bothered me. The rejection of it felt like it wasn't the rejection of the drink. It was the rejection of my soul. Yeah. And it really bothered me. And I was afraid to put myself out there and would only... Pursue people that I fell head over heels in love with on sight. Yeah. And then I would stalk them for two years. <laughs> but I wasn't that like every night looking for a different situation right. person. I was looking to fall in love and, you know, there was no quick hit. Right. The few times that happened, I always regretted it and thought it, it, it was uh, weird and unsatisfying. Uh, and uh, but I was always amazed that it happened. Like, oh, I guess that does happen to people. Right. So people do do that. I don't want to do that. Right. But I guess those stories people tell are true. <laughs> I wonder if you see it the same as me is that it was always so gauche. I actually just wrote this today. Mm-hmm. Today was this idea that like even saying I'm single mm-hmm. to me because I was married and then I got divorced. Even saying like I'm single on like a Facebook page mm-hmm. seemed too gross. It yeah. was like saying I'm down to fuck. I, I, I likened it to standing up at a dinner party and saying, I have to take a dump. Mm-hmm. It's like too in your body. It's too like, keep yeah. that to yourself. Like, that's yeah, weird. It's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely, it, it reminds me of when people say, when they would send soldiers to Vietnam, like the neurotic ones or, I don't know, the smart ones, you couldn't leave them in a foxhole all night. Because they would imagine themselves getting shot or all the things that could happen to them. Mm. Where people who didn't think that way could just sit there all night looking for trouble. <laughs> but they wouldn't be in terror, you know, be in terror thinking, what if someone is pointing at my face right now? Right. And lose their minds. I bet the second group is better yeah. at fucking. Exactly. Yeah. I'm the guy imagining we say this everything. Right. Nick Kroll has just the best bit called Sexes for Stupid People. It's so funny. What about virginity? I think you told me that once. What's that? How do you lose your virginity? I lost my virginity on a <laughs> ski trip. <laughs> and afterwards, as a joke, I said, hey, was it good for you too? <laughs> Which is sexy to girls to do like a Steve Martin voice yeah. after she loses her virginity. <laughs> hey, it's really great to be here. And the young woman said... Uh, well, I guess it'll get better. <laughs> Not ideal. Not the ideal uh, retort. Was she a ski instructor? That was very, like, kind of... That was like a high school <laughs> senior trip. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, t- will you tell the Eminem story? I love it. When he was when he was in Funny People. Well, Eminem came, and the idea was... Who can George talk about his problems with? George being Sandler. His his problems being a celebrity, his problem being rich, his problem getting attention and approval and just what his ride is like. Mm -hmm. And it can only be an equally 
uh, famous and unhappy celebrity. Right. <laughs> so we asked Eminem to do it, and he shows up, and he's really intense, very, very nice, there to do a good job. But it's, there's an intensity about the guy. Mm-hmm. And let me say, he's my favorite. He's unbelievable. I, I, I really uh, am a fan. And Sandler knows him a little bit, so they're comfortable, and I'm slightly nervous. Um, so we start uh, freestyle and doing a zine. But I'm like throwing a lot of stuff at him yeah. to say. And one of the things I want him to riff on is how bored he is hanging out with his bodyguards. And so we throw him this line, and he says, uh, I mean, how many times can I hear anecdotes about Prince? (laughs) That's what bodyguards talk about. It's a weird experience with Prince. Yeah. Uh, And then Ray Romano is there, and it just seems weird. But Ray Romano's there and Seth, and we decide that what if... Uh, you know, Eminem started talking about how he hates that everyone's taking his picture all the time. So he said, oh, we'll have Ray Romano take his picture. Then he just starts yelling at Ray Romano. And then <laughs> Adam is like, do you know who that is? He's like, I know who the fuck that is. <laughs> and he's like, I'll kiss your fucking ass. You want, you want me to fuck you? You want me to fuck you? And, <laughs> and so it was really making us laugh. We just started laughing so hard at the confrontation between Eminem and Ray yeah, Romano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then afterwards, Ray Romano is in the monitor and he seems kind of bummed. And he's like, is it that funny that you people think I can't defend myself against Eminem? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you guys think I wouldn't win that fight? (laughs) Am I such a pussy that, like, the idea that I might get into a fight with him is hysterical? (laughs) He was joking, but it's really funny. But probably 5% real. (laughs) Probably 5%. And then Eminem goes in the car. With Sandler and plays him his next album that hadn't come out yet. Oh my god! And Sandler's like, "Oh my god, it was unbelievable." Eminem played me his record, and I thought, "I'm never the guy that gets invited into that car." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the director. I go, "I'm not in the car listening to his album." That's great. I love that. Thank you. Uh, what about the Chandler Shandling? Sorry, uh, psychic thing. Remember that? So they they want us to do an episode about. I feel like you're a jukebox, right? Yeah. <laughs> a, a psychic uh, coming on the Larry Sanders show. So we we said, well, let's have her, have this psychic that Gary sees. The real psychic. The real psychic. Come to the show. We'll just see how people react. Yeah. And we'll get a feel of what it is because none of us had been to a psychic. So she shows up and instantly she starts reading people. And I'm walking around to different offices and she just reads people. And this is before anyone was on the internet. Like, none of us had internet. Right, because that is... It existed, but no one had it. Any good psychic story now gets ruined with, like, the good have seen your Facebook page. <laughs> we were all just in, like, you know, lesbian chat rooms on AOL. That's all. That's what I thought the internet was. I thought the internet was literally just that's a lesbian chat be. room. Yeah, that's all it could be. And so she goes into the producer's office, and he says, oh, you're engaged. Her name starts with a Z. Is it Zoe? And then we're like, wow, that's weird. Who guesses Zoe? Yeah. Uh, and then... Said that to who? Uh, the line producer. Oh, my God. And then he, and she's talking to Jon Stewart, and she's like, and then you're... Someone in your family worked in the steel industry, and the, like, we're getting really specific. Yeah. And Jon Stewart, who totally didn't buy it at all, 
his mind is blown. Yeah. Like she nails three things with Jon Stewart. Right. Uh, you told me that he was so skeptical, and then three things later he's like... You know, a total believer yeah. in that moment. I think that's so cool. Then she walks in this office with the Hike and Gregory and says to Alex Gregory, uh, you want to be a cartoonist. You're going to be. You're going to be. And he had never told any of us that he wanted to be a cartoonist. One of my favorite cartoonists. Uh, and now he he has cartoons in The New Yorker. Yeah, like every week. Uh, That's incredible. And then he's, she said to me, um, you're going to direct soon. I had never directed. And there's going to be a flood. And within three weeks, Gary asked me to direct The Larry Sanders Show. And there was this crazy rain and it flooded my bedroom. What? Uh, so it was a little mind-blowing. Now, in recent years, I... I had paid for Leslie to have a session with her uh, for her birthday Still or something. Still active. Just for fun, I had Leslie yeah. have a session with her. And she's like, I see um, are you guys going like a tropical place and um, I just see curvy roads. I want you to be careful. And there was a lot of oh, really? we're going to die in Hawaii energy. <laughs> and so... We consider canceling the vacation. There was a vacation. Uh, oh, yeah. We were going to go to Hawaii. We go to Hawaii and just hide in the room for two weeks, <laughs> never leave, <laughs> never drive anywhere. And then we get home and I'm like, psychics aren't real. We're not dead. <laughs> and every time I say that, Leslie's like, you never know which vacation it is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of thwarted the oracle. Exactly. You did the, you, you did the unthinkable. You didn't... Uh, Kill your father and fuck your mother. Uh, do you have a nemesis that never believed in you? <laughs> a nemesis that never believed in me. I always thought there were certain people who just didn't think I was funny. And early in my career, as I slowly started getting jobs, I felt like in my head I had certain people that I thought, they don't think I'm that good. Yeah. And Did that I motivate you? It must have in some way. And I probably wasn't that good. Right. But I would just like get the feeling from certain people. Uh, you know, It might be like a writer on the Ben Stiller show when I was one of the people running the show with Ben. Oh, that writer doesn't think I'm any good. And I was just winging it. I wasn't that good. And I felt like, oh, I want to I earn that person's respect. Mm. And over the years... Slowly, some of those people, I felt like, oh, I think they might think I'm okay now. Right. The, the people I looked up to that I felt were judging me, and most of them probably weren't judging me. Or if they were, they should have been. Right. But there was no nemesis. Although there were people when I started doing well that seemed like it really bothered them. Right. Dave Raff. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you felt like, you know, they're, they don't think I'm that good, and they don't know why they're not doing better than me. Right. And that hurt. And and some friendships ended because I felt like, oh, that person's mad at me or doesn't want me to succeed or, mm. or I would hear comments making fun of me. And then years later, I thought, oh, that was stupid because we're all trying so hard and we all well, aren't nice all the time. And I, there were people I kind of drifted from that I feel bad in retrospect mm. because my feelings got hurt because they would you know, make comments like, Jen's producing? Mm. Really? <laughs> in front of you? <laughs> there was one person that a friend of mine said, like, you shouldn't be friends with them. They say really mean things about you when you're not around. Really? And then I drifted from that person, and years later, I'm like, you know, that doesn't mean that person didn't like me. Sometimes people just talk shit, and it doesn't mean anything. Or they're insecure in that moment, and I, and I got sensitive right. to it. 
Hmm. You know. Okay. All right. All right. Let me see. I'm running out, which is great, which means we've done a good job. Uh, What happens when we die? Fuck. Why do you do that to me (laughs) right before bed? Sometimes right as I'm going to bed, I'll think that and I just can't get to sleep. (laughs) Although last night. Do you want to know what Dana Carvey said? What? He goes, where were you during the Renaissance? You just go back there. (laughs) Isn't that good? Does he mean that? He just means like... You know, it's one of those if death is, you are not sort of things. Like, so what do you have to worry about? I have one friend who had a near-death experience. He had a car accident. And then after the car accident, he he felt like a leaving of his body. And mm. he had a sense of people saying, like, it's not time. And then he, like, went back. But to him, it was very real. Mm-hmm. Like, he says it wasn't a dream. It, it was 100% More real than this real. world. Yeah. Like, it was like the discussion is a time and, like, it's not time. Right. Uh, and that gave me comfort for a couple of years. Yeah. Because he, he so believed it. Uh, but um, this doesn't really relate. But I woke up this morning and I thought I had the greatest joke. <laughs> and, and it was in my um, dream. And I woke up thinking it, going, don't forget this. Don't forget this. This is so, so important. This is such a good joke. And the joke was... Your penis <laughs> is the only part of your body that you really only control it by being able to lift it. <laughs> you can't push it back down. You can only not try to lift it. And you can only do this when you're hard. <laughs> and I thought it was a genius joke yeah. when I woke up. And you then can- as I slowly got awake, I realized it was insane. Right. But in, as, as I was waking up, like, you can't move it left, you can't move it right, you can't push it down, but it's the only part that you could just lift. <laughs> but only went hard. Yeah. And I just thought, what an incredible observation. Yeah. There's a comedy club <laughs> in our dreams where every weird thing like that just destroys. Yeah. Like, I mean, sometimes I believe in God when I think of a couple of things. One is, I don't understand how evolution can lead to sight. I, I don't think that... Out of the blue, your body uh, would want has, to see. Well, it has like a, you know what is it called? Select, um, you know, uh, natural selection. Yeah, like it's not like suddenly the little micro uh, single cell organisms, single cell organisms. You know, the ones that are beginning to see live. Right. Like I don't see what the right. That's how, a big jump. How that? Uh, that how that would? Like, I can understand like flying. Maybe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the ones jumping off of trees all die except for the ones that just happen to have the big That's arms. But I, uh, but the sight I and also dreams, that. like dreams, the, uh, the whole idea that at night your mind is being creative and there's some reason to have all these stories told in your head and mm. metaphors and mm-hmm. messages. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how that would. Evolve. I actually think that speaks to our uh, feeling of an afterlife. Mm-hmm. I, I think that actually informs our cells mm-hmm. of some sort of instinct of an afterlife. Is that every night we die, falling mm-hmm. asleep, so we go away, mm-hmm. and then we go into this other place yeah. where there's like this second absurd life where we're like, my dick can only go up and down. <laughs> and people are like, <sighs> so that sort of death and rebirth thing happening mm-hmm. every day. I think yeah. it, it speaks to something potentially spiritual. If only where we kind of get those ideas. I don't know. 
I'm so interested that you drink purified drinking water. I know. I feel like I have the worst breath in the world right now. And <laughs> you're going to be using this micro globe, microphone globe on someone else. And like, God, the thing smells. I did Apatow for two hours. What about falling asleep? Do you have a sleep ritual? I listen to your podcast. <laughs> Is that an insult? I do, but you laugh a lot and that wakes me up sometimes. If it's someone that you're quiet with, I can listen to that. But usually I'll look at like like the New Yorker podcast and see if there's anything boring and then it, there are certain voices that put me to sleep and I like having someone talking in my ear. I think it's probably very unhealthy and I should just be with myself. Yeah. But I'll just put on, you know, a fresh air. Yeah. You know, with someone talking about the transition of power in Afghanistan and I'll go to sleep to that. Oh, that's perfect. And I put a timer on in 15 minutes and I Oh, it turns off. Sleep. Oh. Uh, that's that's usually what I what I do. But what if you were what if you didn't have your iPod? Is there something that you do to kind of wind The reason I ask this question is I think it's interesting when people are like, I like to pretend I'm buried in a pile of leaves. This is an answer oh, no, I got I don't once. Do that. I mean, I will meditate or do a, a mantra. Yeah. Do you have like a Sanskrit mantra or are you just repeating a sound? Yeah. You know, and the, or I'll, so there's a little piece on a Deepak Chopra record where he talks about how to go to sleep, gives you a mantra, he says it a bunch of times, and then it's just music for two minutes and it ends. And if I put that on in my ear, that's a good one. I've programmed myself to fall asleep to it. Oh, that's great. So that works sometimes. Uh, but what happens is as soon as I get in bed, I am immediately wide awake. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just go on Twitter and talk about Cosby for an hour and a half. You knew I was going to talk about Cosby. I was going to say, was would, you, over. would you like to get in some Cosby? <laughs> you know, the thing about it is a feel that the people want to laugh and they need to let me give them my gift. Oh, God. You don't want Cosby to say he wants to give you his gift. Oh, no. You say uh, I don't know if you want to say this on the on the record, like this is on the record. But you think he might be slipping. You think he might be kind of out of his mind. I think there's a chance that uh, some of his mind is not. Uh, as, well, he's real old. As strong as it as it once was. I think I think he's also been in a fame bubble yeah. for a very long time, and uh, not a great reputation as a nice man, even in the seventies. Yeah. So I think he's probably created his space. Right. For a long time, and I, I don't know when you add in the fact that he's a well, they were a criminal, right, and a sociopath. It must affect all aspects of his life. It doesn't. It's not like oh, I just do this one demented thing, right? It, I'm sure it affects how he creates what he wants his world to be, right? If that fits in your world, and there's a lot of odd stuff happening. I think it's connected to like the charity work. Because it's hard to accuse people of things when they're also doing really good things yeah. at the same time. I think it's fascinating. I don't think people are fascinated enough with it. That is bizarre. I mean, there's the one aspect, which is why don't people stand up for the women? And then there's another part, which is why aren't more people upset about Cosby and trying to do something about it? Right. Because we'll get upset about Donald Sterling saying a racist comment way more mm-hmm. than Cosby, you know, Potentially raping you know, dozens of people. Right. And what becomes a story and not a story is strange. Right, right, right. right. But just from the fascination aspect of it, there's not a lot of articles about it. There's not a lot of people really breaking it down. Mm-hmm. Like, what was this? How did this happen? I think it's fascinating uh, uh, in terms of what it says about our culture, mm-hmm. even how we're dealing with it now, that people still go to the shows. Yeah. I don't know who am I to judge. 
Like He's brought me so much joy. You know, that's his private life. <laughs> there was a guy they interviewed at a Cosby show. And they said, uh, you know, what do you think about all the controversy? And he said, I think if you have sex with Bill Cosby, you've, it's like winning the lottery. That was his response? That was his response. I mean, so, so there's a, a lot of uh, bizarre behavior and, and willful denial around this. Yeah. And it's very, it's very interesting. But I, I find it troubling more for the culture of ignoring women right. than about Cosby. Because I'm not – you know, the, the Cosby thing hurts because he's like our comedy dad. But I'm more disappointed in just, you know, our culture – that for some reason we're not tossing this guy out in the way he should be tossed out. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's really weird. And it, 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 it troubles maybe me. Maybe it is selfish. Maybe people are just like, his jokes still make me laugh. And we, I, I'm just guessing here. Yeah. His jokes make me laugh and we can't take it back. It already happened, like almost like a fucked up sort of. I think so. There's probably some. Do. Don't we have larger problems? I've heard a lot of people say, "Just let him die." Like, just he's just almost let him, dead. Let him die in peace. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know why. I, I feel like the world and especially the entertainment community should make a larger statement. Yeah. About it. Yeah. And it bothers me that. Nobody is saying anything, right? And but don't you think that'll change? Think things are gonna. I don't know. I think it may not change. I think, yeah. I mean, I mean, he won't be with us uh, forever. But yeah. I don't know if suddenly people are going to stand up and and say, "How dare he behave like this?" Right. And this is the worst of human behavior. Right. Which they should. Yeah. Uh, it's weird to get a free pass because you're you're old and you had a, a, a funny show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Theo guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it it, it is uh, good of you, obviously. I mean, to draw attention to it. I certainly became more aware of it. Certainly, first because of Hannibal, mm-hmm. but I mean, you took that baton and have uh, lapped him. But people really want to make it go away, like. Like it'll just go quiet, and he's just out there, right? I mean, it, it, it's you know, it's a, it's like a violent uh, criminal. It's like a, <laughs> it's like Robert Durst. What you need is, a, is. you need a six part HBO series. Uh, exactly, <laughs> and there's there's that's not if you could find to be a happening. way to entertain us while yeah. also bringing the facts to light, because <laughs> he entertained us with the Cosby Show, and that helped put the facts in the darkness. I guess, I guess, if there was like a show where I'm just like. In a teepee outside of his house in Massachusetts, <laughs> people would be fascinated, and we would uh, call attention to it. And then yeah, we, and we just hope hope he burps <laughs> at, at, at some point. I'm trying to think of like other things that have bothered me this much. I mean, ISIS bothers me this much. I just don't feel like I can affect it. Right. You can tweet about obviously ISIS. that's uh, you know a nightmarish scenario, but. But I don't think my tweets right. affect policy. Where in a weird way, I feel like just keeping Cosby in the news a little bit is a positive thing. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to tweet about ISIS a little bit more. <laughs> now that you mention it, <laughs> I'm going to alternate. Yeah. One for the cause, 
one for ISIS. I just wanted to see. It says two oh six, and I feel like if we can get to two seventeen, it's longer than my longest movie. Oh, really? Or maybe that's two twenty two. Well, let's do I it. I just want to outstate my welcome. Do people is, ever like you're like, hey, your movies are too long, and you're like, two words, Peter Jackson, and just like yeah. walk away. Here's something I would love to hear you speak on. Is you said I, just, I I love your iconoclasts with uh, Lena. My only regret, I think that's such a great show. It used to be an hour. I don't know why. It's Sundance. The Sundance Channel mm-hmm. trimmed their best show into 22 I minutes. No, yeah, it plays like a preview for what should be like the mo- Like it's just a conversation. It was a good. Uh, it was a good episode, and they caught us. Like the week the show premiered, and yeah. everyone was in a good mood, and the reviews were good, and Lena's moving into her first apartment. Yep, you're the first visitor, and uh, it was great. I yeah, I wish that they did uh, do the full hour because they, they, they it was really funny. I'd love to watch the raw raw footage. But one of the things you said that I thought was great was you said I would show a cut of my movie to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, to all these directors, and then all the directors would give you notes. Do you remember saying this? Mm-hmm. That would make that that movie into one of their movies. Yes, that's true. And then you were just like, I, I can't, like, I can't please. It's kind of like in that ballpark of I can't please everybody, and that sort of beautiful maturity that Lena also shares, where it's just kind of like it's not going to be for everybody. I noticed that when we did the Ben Stiller show, I sent the pilot to Gary Shaling and Albert Brooks, and they were you know, six or seven sketches on the show, and the three that each person mentioned as their favorite were the exact opposites. Yeah. And, and, that, and that was a big moment for me. Oh, I respect these guys. I love both of these guys. Right. So neither of them are right or wrong. Right. And so I actually have to be careful about what I listen to, even though I do ask for opinions from a lot of people on... Uh, my movies, although on the train wreck, I didn't as much. Uh, but I felt like I was closer to to the world of a lot of my heroes on previous movies. So I, I showed all my heroes them and, and got notes, and some of them were very helpful. When I I showed James Brooks the the script for This Is Forty, there was a scene that got cut out where they were at the therapist and. Paul Rudd said, I feel like we're one great conversation away from never fighting ever again. But that conversation never seems to happen. (laughs) And James Brooks said, well, that's what the movie's about. And so you have to remember that. Right. Um, You mean even though the scene is cut, like keep that in your mind? Yeah, he just was, because near the end of shooting, I emailed him, what was the movie about again? (laughs) <laughs> and he wrote me this beautiful email explaining what he liked about right. the script. And it was about, you know, just trying to get along and, and 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 you know, loving somebody but still having conflicts and always feeling like we're so close to just some connection that makes it all easy. Right. Uh, but that really isn't the case for anybody. You're right. always working through your issues. It reminds me of, issues. of the spiritual thing. It's mm-hmm. like if I can only just get into the into the inner sanctum, that's mm-hmm. where I'll really touch God's hand sort of thing. Yeah, when, when will you, we let go? Right. That's why at the end of the movie he just crashes his bicycle because like, there is no resolution other than to fear losing someone and right. appreciating them. And, I think uh, of that, Jim. And just starting over again and going, all right, sometimes it, it, you, you don't work out all those details. Right. You just say, I love you, we're different, we see things differently. Right. And we just start up again and we appreciate each other again. Right. 
The two jokes from that movie you made me think of one is his license plate is, and then he has a dealer license plate. <laughs> I think of that. I see those dealer's license plates all the time, and I'm like, why are some cars allowed to drive around without license plates? Like if Al Capone did that, they arrest yes, him, you know right. what I mean? And then the other thing was uh, Valerie loves listening to like Beyonce and yeah. stuff. There was a great girls joke. In fact, I'd just like to say on the record, this season of Girls was the best season uh, so far. I, I think Amazing. It was a good one. So good. And there's a great line where Hannah says, um, she means like, oh, it's the best thing ever. She goes, oh, it's Beyonce. <laughs> like, it just becomes synonymous <laughs> with excellent. Oh, it's Beyonce. That was so funny. But she loves listening to Beyonce, and I love listening to The National. The National mm-hmm. is my favorite yes. band. And in that movie, you play Alice in Chains and like you, you know, movie yes. you. And it's just such a, she always teases me yeah. that that's my moment where she wants to like dance and then I'll put on like the slowest, exactly. most like, and I'm like, this is the music that's going to be around in a hundred years. Yeah. It's that exact scene. <laughs> Here's two great things. I know you're going to be able, uh, you'll be excited to answer these. One is talk, tell about uh, meeting Obama and then, or, or and or okay. the hardest time you've ever laughed. That's always one of my favorite questions. The hardest time I've ever laughed. It was probably the Mushroom Marionette. The Mushroom Marionette thing is is probably close. I remember I went to see Pee Wee Herman's live stage show with Leslie. There's just a moment where he's just making noise with a balloon for a really long amount of time. And it was was as hard as I've seen Leslie laugh. She really (laughs) lost her mind. (laughs) Something so simple. Yeah, and it, 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 it was just great to see her laugh that hard. I'm like, wow, that's like really hard, like crying, yeah. losing your shit, laughing. Her laughing with the nitrous makes me laugh so hard. Like a big laugh like that yeah. kills me. So I know exactly oh, that's what you're right. talking about. Yeah. I die. He goes, we should turn the gas down. And he goes, turn it off. Yeah. So funny. It's sad that I can't think right off the bat of a. Uh, I always tell people it doesn't have to be a good one. There's got to be like Sandler prank phone calls or uh, maybe it was just a movie that you really loved. I feel sad that I can't remember uh, <laughs> one where I really lost my mind. That would be a good little notebook to have where you write down every time like you lose your mind. Yeah. Laughing. I also think or things just go in your favor in some mm-hmm. kind of re- weird providential way. Yeah. I just think you should write those things down too. Um, okay, so I can think of one of those, which now I'm depressed. But <laughs> you did already give us one, which is why that I was the best. I wasn't going to ask. That was a, the best one. Um, then Obama, the president, President Obama, President Obama. I, you know, I met the president at an event, and he had just seen Funny People, and he said, "Oh, me and Michelle loved it. We love depressing movies." <laughs> Which is weird to think that the president, at the end of a long day... Watches funny people. Because that takes a lot of hours. Yeah. <laughs> what do you have to do? Don't you, you have you, something? You think you'd be busy, you would just watch Academy Award-nominated shorts. <laughs> but then we went to another event, and I asked him uh, how Jimmy Kimmel was. He had just done Jimmy Kimmel. Now, the funny thing is, when you meet the president at these events, you usually talk to him for 30 seconds and take a photo and everyone who talks to him usually wants to say something about an issue like don't forget to fight for Obamacare or something right. like the, the moment is about politics yeah 
But I never do that because I know that the president wants a break and I go, I'm the break. <laughs> and I want to talk about comedy. And, so you just and, bring a box. And I want to know if he's yeah. seen my stuff because it's all about my ego. Yeah. I don't think he's changing policy because of me. So I just try to get him to say something nice to me and give him a chance to talk about something other than his daily concerns. And so I asked him how Jimmy Kimmel went. He's like, went good. Went good. I'm like, uh, I heard you did mean tweets. He's like, yeah, we did some mean tweets. We did some mean tweets. And then Leslie says, what were they? <laughs> Forcing him into this weird position to insult himself for our entertainment. And then he sent a bunch of the mean tweets to us, uh, which was like really funny. But then I laughed really hard because I knew there was a photographer taking pictures. And I thought, if I laughed hard, it'll look like we're friends. <laughs> And the photo is hysterical. I, I literally, I, I the only way it could look crazier is if I was actually slapping my knee. I'm laughing so hard, and he's like, looks so cool, like he's nailing a punchline, and I'm just my face is contorted in <laughs> lunatic laughter. <clears throat> then he took questions from people. Everyone sat around in a very small group, and he took questions, and I asked a very serious question, and and the entire time. He was answering. He never broke eye contact with me for 10 minutes, hmm. which was really uncomfortable. Wait, he was just answering general questions and then he chose yeah. you to look at? No, he was answering my question. Oh. Uh, and he talked for 10 minutes, but never looking away from my eyes. Not and even he, a brief? Not even a brief giving me a break. And <clears throat> and it was one of those things where you could suddenly like hear your breath <laughs> and you're just going... Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And you just so want the question to end like too much intimacy. You're not even listening at that point. You're just like, wrap it up, Barry. And uh, when he called on me, he went, Judd? And I looked around and I went, me? And he goes, is there another Judd in here? <laughs> then when he got up to leave, it was a very small group. He walked away. And he looked over his shoulder and went, bye, Judd. No way. And I turned to Leslie like, come on, that was the coolest thing ever. Leslie was talking to someone else, didn't see it. Oh, boy. <laughs> like the president oh, boy. said, bye, Judd. <laughs> <laughs> because he wanted a break from being the president. Yeah, and you were the break. And I was the break. That's perfect. Because whenever he's like talking to us, they, they usually are trying to bring in the next people to talk to him. And he always talks to us. At these events for too long because he doesn't want to talk to the next person. Right. He wants to hear stories about Superbad. He <laughs> wants to know if Seth Rogen smokes a lot of pots. Yeah. That's what I'm assuming he's thinking. <laughs> that he has questions for me. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm making all this up. It's, a, it's an egomaniacal <laughs> fantasy of mine that Obama uh, wants to talk to me. He's but nice. He, he's nice to everyone. Uh, I just but he's one of those it. people that you're like, oh, I get it. He's he's like the point zero 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 one percent of those people that's just kind of like a Superman. There's just like a level of intelligence that's ridiculous, and I, I think he is a great person. Like you could tell, he's really trying hard to do a good job. Yeah. He's really thoughtful. He's yeah. in an insane situation with how the Republicans and Democrats fight. Right. And he's trying to figure out how to slip in things that are helpful for people. Right. Wherever he can. And you, you can't – there are no solutions to most of these problems because it just creates 11 new crazy problems. Right, right, right. But when you look him in the eye and he talks about these things, you feel a very sincere, brilliant person 
doing their best. Yeah. And I, I, I think he's fantastic. Next I, time you go, what about Cosby? <laughs> I thought about it. Honestly, I, honestly, I was going to go, what are we going to do about Cosby? That was going to be my question. What are we going to do about Cosby? And right before uh, he called me, I thought, I think that would be the most awful thing to do. Yeah. Like, that would be a, a terrible thing to ask the president. <laughs> oh, fuck, Judd. <laughs> that, yeah. Oh, Jesus, Judd. Don't, don't go there right now. <laughs> he probably could have got away with People that. People would have said, Judd lost his mind. He had one question with the president, and he asked about a 78-year-old criminal. <laughs> and it wasn't Whitey Bulger. There are way more criminals for Obama to deal with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think we did it, man. Look. It's 220. We did it. We Is did that it. what we were going for? I think that, yeah, I think we're in the range of what is, you know, for my movies where people are like, that was 50 minutes longer <laughs> than I needed. The only thing I had was I could play the Deepak quote. How many people actually listen to the whole podcast? Every time this challenge is thrown down, you're going to see a billion tweets that go, I listen to the whole thing. I listen to the whole thing. You can do a little test. If you listen to the whole thing, tweet to Judd, grilled cheese, and Entenmann's. And everyone will, people will do it. Okay. Because okay. people want to hear about the God part. They want to hear about the hardest laugh part. It's the best part. My In fact, I would say the whole point of going long is because the first 60 minutes of this podcast was great. But right around here, you get loopy. Mm-hmm. And that's when it gets good. That's when you land on Cosby. <laughs> well, thank you. So, so much. I, I, I just like saying it publicly. I think what you do is amazing. I think your stand-up is hilarious, and your films are incredible, and your, the TV is incredible. So thank you. It's an honor that you did it. Uh, it was great to be here. I'll be at Largo April 30th uh, with special guests. And that's a monthly show, too. They should come back uh, Yeah, if you're listening come, to this later. Come to Largo. We do shows. Uh, we had Jackson Brown at one. We had Lindsey Buckingham at one. The Milk Carton Kids. John Bryan, Fiona Apple, a lot of surprise uh, musical Sandler, guests. Randy Stade. Newman is doing it this week. Norm MacDonald did it. Norm MacDonald is very funny. Incredible guests. It's the best show happening in L.A. So uh, try to come to that. And Sick in the Head, buy my book, Sick in the Head. It's all the money goes to charity. I don't get uh, any of that money. And, we, and we'll plug that in the intro as well. So if they only listen to the first minute, they'll still hear about the book. Exactly. I think I've plugged well. I think you plugged well as well. Would you say, we end the show, I don't know if you remember this, when you did the live one, we have the guests say, keep it crispy. Keep it crispy. (laughs) Judd, dismissive. Keep it crispy. (laughs) Thanks, man. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 